I'm Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America, we live in Israel, and we're curious. We never want to stop learning about the world we live in. We want to discuss, we want to challenge popular conceptions, we want to think critically, examine independently, and most of all, we crave nuance. Each episode, we'll interview a different guest, all interesting and original people. We'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, sports, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? We want to create a platform where people share with us their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. We only want to reach a deeper, nuanced understanding of our existence. Join us on our journey as we explore, think, debate, discuss, and perhaps most importantly, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but, but with a J. Yeah, yeah, they get it, man. Let's just start. Welcome to episode three of Juanced. Our special guest today is veteran, longtime news correspondent covering Israel and the Middle East, Mark Levy. How you doing, Mark? Doing great. Thanks, Dan. Well, you have been here uh, now for well over 40 years covering Israel and the Middle East, uh, originally from Indiana. From Indiana, Fort Wayne, Indiana. I know someone else who's from Indiana. Yeah, yeah, so I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> so for those listeners who aren't familiar with me, uh, I actually grew up in Indiana also. And uh, we both, uh, well, a few years before my time, we passed through South Bend, Indiana. And you uh, made Aliyah uh, in 1972 and uh, spent a lot of that time covering uh, Israel, covering the Middle East. And you finished out as an AP correspondent in uh, Cairo, covering the Arab Spring. Is that correct? That's right, yes. Incredible. And you live now in Rehovot. You're my neighbor. We go to shul together. Right. And you have a lovely voice. I get to hear you in the choir. Thank you. And uh, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. It's good to be here. Wonderful. Um, so we have a lot of things we wanted to talk to you about today. Um, but I think what would be interesting to start with is how does a guy from Indiana end up covering the Middle East and even in Cairo, Egypt during the Arab Spring? Ta- take us through that. How, how do you start out I, in small town what, Indiana and make your way to Israel? What's a nice guy like me doing in a place like this? <laughs> That's right. Okay. I get that question all the time. Yeah. <laughs> well... <laughs> It's not your typical Zionist story that you might hear from, from other people. It's, it's quite the opposite. Uh, I grew up in a Reformed Jewish home in Fort Wayne, Indiana. As did we. My parents are Holocaust survivors. Ours are not. Uh, we didn't discuss Israel. It wasn't really on the agenda. They were just very, very happy to have somehow gotten themselves to America. And uh, Israel was... a topic of news the same way that uh, any other topic of news was discussed around the dinner table. That's a typical Holocaust survivor Mm -hmm. dinner table where you discuss the news, but nothing special. Uh, I am a product of the famous 60s. I was in university during the key years of the 60s and was a a, a quiet member of of the movement quiet because back then journalists didn't express their views in public. I know how strange that seems today. Yeah, well, we're shocked. We don't know what yeah, that is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, so, you know, we, uh, I kept it to myself, but uh, certainly behind the scenes I was uh, I was active, as, as active as one can be without uh, revealing who he is and what he's doing. Very committed to reshaping the United States and the image of the people who wanted to improve things there socially. Uh, from the point of view of racism, from the point of view of civil rights, et cetera, et cetera. 
And of course, the Vietnam War was in the background there as well. You didn't get drafted? Uh, I enlisted. You enlisted? Yes. Oh, wow. I enlisted because I had a, a straight shot into Armed Forces Radio. Uh-huh. Right. And how, how unusual was that for a Jew uh, in the United States to enlist in, in the U.S. military during the Vietnam War? First of all, I have no idea. Uh, I, I wasn't that identified as a Jew. I was a, a Reformed Jew as a person, but I wasn't in organized Jew, uh, Jewish activities very much. Uh, but the rest of the story is, is, is different. Uh, I flunked the physical because <laughs> I tore up a knee playing ice hockey when I was 15, and they wouldn't take me. Now, the upshot of that is four years later, here I was in a, in a tank unit in the Israeli <laughs> army, right? You can't run. F- fine, you walk. <laughs> you ride. Right. <laughs> ride in the tank. Uh, not a problem. So that right there is a major, major difference between the two things. Uh, so uh, became clear to me at the end of the 60s that the movement was over, that my friends who had been marching and, and, uh, and, and striking and, and writing and doing all the things we used to do were lawyers and merchants and business people and MBAs because uh, the war was over. <laughs> and it was no longer a personal threat to them. Uh-huh. So those of us who mm. believed in all that stuff and thought that you know, it really should continue were in a very small minority and I started getting uncomfortable living in the United States. So here I am, uh, anchor of an 11 p.m. newscast in a small but important city in Indiana uh, on a CBS affiliate. Uh, after the, uh, the news, uh, we would all go to a bar and close the bar down. Uh, and one night after, I believe it was five Harvey Wallbangers. <laughs> what, what is that? <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, right, Dan. Uh, Harvey Wallbanger is a combination of uh, Galliano wine and orange juice. Sounds awful. And vodka. <laughs> oh, it's very, very smooth. It's good times all around. Yeah. So after five of those, and that's enough, you know, these days, one would knock me out. The idea of Israel popped into my mind. <laughs> How? Why? I have no idea. Right. So you're in the United States. You yeah. just got out of college. You're an yeah. anchor in a small town, South Bend, by the way. My father actually... Uh, who's a little younger than you, not by much, remember seeing you on the news Wow! Um, at the time. Well, there's not that many Jews in South Bend, so when there's a prominent one, people uh, people tend to notice. Oh, yeah, when the word got around that I'm Jewish. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone started throwing their daughters at me. There it was really go. very funny. <laughs> yeah, I got around. Anyway, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so so you're, you're not especially Zionist. You're not especially into foreign affairs at the time, and you decide to go and move to Israel in the 1970s? Well, I'll tell you. uh, I had been by then in South Bend for something like two years. That's about a year and a half too much. I can... Whatever. (laughs) I I had offers to go to other places, larger places. uh, uh, But it occurred to me at the age of 24, I'm pretty young to be a television anchor, uh, news anchor, and... What I can do at 24, I can also do at 27. Hmm. Why not take three years out and try Israel? What can possibly go wrong? How did Israel pop into you? I mean, besides Harvey Waldingers, of course. No idea. I honestly have no idea. Did you have, like, I'm just trying to like dig into the subconscious. Of yeah, this. Yeah. Were there friends that were in, in Zionist movements? Did you go to a summer camp? Nope. Were nope. There, you know, I went to a, Jew, a Reformed Jewish summer camp, but Israel was not a main topic there. 
Did you know anybody uh, else that had made that uh, move no, to Israel? No. I do recall uh, that there were people at the summer camp who spoke better Hebrew. I, know, I spoke none. Uh, I was in a, a, a Sunday school environment where every year we started learning the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and we would get up to, the, to, to maybe halfway through, and next year we'd start over. <laughs> and that was the extent of my Hebrew. And I, I recall thinking uh, that I, I couldn't read the Hebrew in the prayer book. And it, it, it occurred to me at the time that if I spent three years in Israel, at least I would come back with a knowledge of Hebrew, at least that. So apparently it was important to me. And were, was it common for journalists or, or budding journalists that were starting out in the 70s to try to get an experience that would define them in terms of you know, getting out of the town? Or you know, Now it seems like a lot of people, and I know from friends that I, that I have that are journalists today, they want to, you know, be there, at, you know, on on the site of things where where things are happening, or go away from their home and try to have something that ex, that sort of defines the the beginning portion of their career, which is, uh, uh, you know, outside of the box. I can't speak for other journalists. I can speak for myself. At the time, uh, I was on a career path. I was an anchor reporter, mostly anchor, because what I do best is write and broadcast. Uh, I'm a reporter. I, I'm, you know, I, I can do that, but it's not what I do best. I was on a career path to go from a large TV station in a, uh, in, in a small city to a larger TV station in a larger city and then to a larger city to flame out or get to the network, and that was the career path. Uh, going overseas as a war correspondent had no inter- interest for me whatsoever. Uh, I was uh, more interested at that time in domestic affairs, uh, in, in, as I say, social justice and civil rights. Uh, I re- recall some of the uh, things I ran, ag- ran up against in my own profession, which at the end of my career I ran into others. Uh, for example, I, I went in early. I, I did, as, as I said, the 11 o'clock news. I'd come in at 2 o'clock and do some reporting, and then after the 6 o'clock news, get around to producing my own uh, newscast. So one day I went in a little bit early because there was the demonstration across the street at, Silver, uh, at, at City Hall by some welfare rights people. Uh, so I went in uh, and uh, got a camera and said, I'm going across the street to the demonstration. And my boss, old-fashioned kind of guy, says, no, you're not. We're not covering that. They're just there because they want us to come. Said, so I look at your assignment board. What's up there? Three news conferences. What's the difference? What's the difference? They want us to come, and they want us to come. And I got the the slack-jawed response I got so often in my career. Gee, I never thought of that. So what would they have preferred that you cover? One of the news conferences which it wasn't on my assignment. You know, I'd come in early to do this one because I knew exactly what would happen. They'd say, oh, you're not going over there. They're just, you know, I don't want to say this, just a bunch of black people who want to get on TV. Right. You know, and the other one's a bunch of white people who want to get on TV, and don't I know what that means? So I've been battling my own profession since day one. I've got another bunch of stories, which I won't bore you with, uh, that, that uh, had that same kind of reaction. Gee, I never thought of that. Uh, but that that was my that was my interest at the time was domestic affairs, and uh, and social justice. And of course, you do that uh, by being in control of a newscast. Kind of helps. Uh, 
I never, as I said before, disclosed my own personal views on the air. But you could somehow tell because when I came out of a network report about some racist atrocity in the South, you'd see me looking at the monitor with a disgusted look on my face, and then I look back at the camera, perfectly neutral. I would allow myself to do that, at least. Uh, but again, circling back to where you were, uh, the idea of Israel, I have no idea where it came from. <laughs> so before we get to Israel, yeah. I mean, you have the, I guess, even the luxury and uh, the wisdom now to be retired um, and not have to be beholden to any newspaper or any line. Um, how are you now, you know, kind of as, first of all, as, as a journalist, but also as an old hippie, if I, if I could say so, how are you looking at all these protests now happening in the States? How are you viewing it? And then let's connect that to the media angle uh, about how it's being viewed and portrayed. Um, what is the role of the media today when we're talking about social unrest and protests and justice and things like that? Well, that's going to take a few hours. Um, we have the time. Yeah, we got yeah. time. Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, I was never a hippie. <laughs> I'm not going to claim that. Hey, there was not like that neutral face that you were talking about a couple minutes ago. I was never. <laughs> no, <there> was <laughs> of course, I meant you know a, a progressive by by those yeah, days. Yeah, progressive was, in the old definition of progressive. Sure. sure. Uh, and if you uh, don't mind me using some of that uh, wisdom, I've. Uh, I've accrued over the decades. Please. It seems to me that the difference between a progressive and a conservative is that progressives look for solutions, conservatives look for some of the blame. That makes sense. There's, there's a lot right? to that. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so, again, I'm not talking about today's progressives who are more concerned with uh, political correctness, right. safe spaces, and, uh, and trigger warnings. Uh, I'm talking about those of us who are looking for ways to fix things. I've always likened... Uh you know, kind of comparisons of progressives and conservatives in a different way that if you, the more you go on one side, uh, you're looking for someone to blame, like you said, and then the more you go to the other side, the more they tend to blame themselves, their own society. <laughs> yeah. Another oh, way yeah, to yeah, parse yeah, it. yeah, that's for sure. Let me get to your main question. First of all, I, uh, I acknowledge that I'm 6,000 miles away from the United States, and I hesitate uh, to, to comment uh, on, on what's going on there. As far as the media is concerned, uh, I can comment on something that I saw going on with my own eyes. Uh, my son was, uh, uh, took his family to Baltimore for three years. He was a shaliach there. He was a... a emissary. He, he, a emissary. He was a teacher in a, in a Jewish high school. Mm -hmm. um, later he became a vice principal back here or whatever. Uh, and so I spent uh, a lot of time in Baltimore uh, and, and was horrified how people live there in the inner city, uh, in the poverty and the filth and the lousy schools and no supermarket. Hard to imagine that it's the same America that, that we grew up in. Yeah, or the same America where we were living over there right. in, in an in a upscale Jewish neighborhood. I mean, I just gravitate toward these places. Uh, it, it, it draws me. Uh, so... At one point, there was a, a, a small demonstration that the people had had it up to their necks with some injustice or another, and they blocked a freeway. Well, I'm listening to the all-news radio station, WBAL, uh, and they're doing the coverage, and they got the, the mayor on the line, who's black herself, and the only questions they would ask her would, 
were about the blocking of the bloody freeway. Not about the social issue involved. No one seemed to care about that. They wanted Just, to know what she was doing about getting the freeway yeah, unblocked. Yeah, yeah, what you know, all they cared about was that damn freeway. And I'm thinking, this is 2018 or 2017, something like that. This was the uh, the Freddie Gray uh, around that time, or uh, like yeah, a year or two after that. Okay, uh, but certainly after that, of course. Uh, and I'm thinking to myself, has nothing changed here? Well, it seems to have changed now. Yeah, uh, if at all, it has changed. In some ways, for the better. After all, we cannot ignore the fact that for eight years the United States had a black president. Right. But we also can't ignore the fact that uh, that black people are getting shot because they're black. Now, I have to say that as a retired but still instinctively a journalist, I looked up the figures. There is no increase in black people getting shot by police. No, there isn't. And there's also... Uh, not a significant difference between black people shot and white people shot when you when you correct for the various factors that you have to correct for. It's perception, and it is to a large extent what I call antisocial media. What do you mean by that? I mean that each incident that used to get reported in Baltimore is now reported everywhere, hmm. and it all adds up. And it looks like that they're just. Mowing people down on the street. Right. Well, that's uh, similar and, to kind of what happened here, uh, you know, not to compare the situations, but but to compare the media coverage. And I know you've written about this a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, how the media covered and still covers to this day, uh, you know, the conflict uh, between Israel and the Palestinians. But, but let's stay on America for a second. Yeah. We had last week uh, on our show a, an African-American Orthodox rabbi who's uh, very much uh, an activist for... Uh, Black Lives Matter and, and for that kind of whole movement, but at the same time, it's very much involved in the Jewish community. Um, so yeah, we also brought up the uh, the death by police statistics, uh, and it's interesting that you point out that you know maybe it's because of social media that every person, every uh, you know, any person standing by that has a cell phone is all of a sudden a reporter, right? YouTube, anything yeah. can go live. Um, but I think there is something in the maybe something that's harder to report in the statistics of bad interactions that maybe go under the radar. Uh, our guest last week uh, talked to us about how many times he's just been stopped and questioned by police uh, for doing No question about right. that. Absolutely. And this was going on back when I was living in America. Mm -hmm. It may be going on more now. It probably is because there are fewer cops on foot and more police in, 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 in uh, vehicles, and that's a bad thing. Uh, but yes, for sure, it has always been a problem. I would not be surprised to hear that it's worse now than it was then. What, what does the the entrance of, of social media, of everyone having camera on them, what does that do to the news, to being able to report the news? Uh, Makes it bloody well impossible. Mm. My experience is that social media uh, have pretty much destroyed journalism. And let's just start with this. Uh, these days, used to be back when I started in the business in the 60s, I had a deadline, a mm -hmm. uh, newspaper deadline once a day, uh, a television deadline twice a day, even radio news once an hour. Nowadays, there are no deadlines. As soon as you find something out, you have to tweet it. Right. doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. If it's wrong, well, we'll fix it later. Well, yeah, that's you crap. You've got to be the first, be the first to, to, be to get the there. first in order that the people will see your story and follow you through the rest of the day 
Uh, otherwise, you lose the story. Okay. Therefore, you're spending more time tweeting than you are reporting. You're tweeting out stuff you haven't checked yet. Yeah, you're not checking sources. You're not verifying. You're right. not. You're not doing any and, of the and, things and that if, a journalist is supposed to do. And if you happen to be wrong about what you've checked, way more people are going to see that initial comment than would see any potential correction that you would post later. If you, you anyone know, if who's you had do so. more than half a semester of psychology knows what the power of a first impression is. Right. Yeah, what's that old saying? A, a lie goes halfway around the world. Uh, before the truth can... Uh, something like the yeah, lie goes right. around the world ten times before the truth makes it past the, yeah. the shore. Something like that. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, of course. And, and here, uh, my former news agency, uh, the Associated Press, is very proud of its fact-checking uh, arm. And they do very good work. And it's totally worthless. Totally worthless. By the time they get a fact-checked thing out, it's way too late. The lie's already been out there, and those who want to believe it will believe it. Right. Those who don't won't. Right. And uh, uh, one of my, uh, how should we say, articles that was less well-received than others was the one where I called for two things, a ban on live interviews in the, in the broadcast media. All live interviews or just All during certain live situations? Interviews. Why? No live interviews because you cannot let them lie and then say, oh, well, that wasn't, you know, because by the time they got it out there, it's going to get believed. I, I, I'm also against live interviews, but perhaps maybe from a different perspective, which is that uh, I don't think that there's, you know, when you're dealing with a newscast, the length of time that an interview can take place or any segment's going to air for is going to be. You know, and you, and you can correct me here, but you know, thirty seconds up to three minutes, maybe, maybe four, five minutes would be a very, very, very long interview segment, especially if you're talking about primetime TV. If you take a, a person, you know, t- say it's a presidential candidate, okay, the weight of that person's job, what they're trying to 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 do, uh, what people want to know about their positions, um, you know, to get into that in any sort of a reasonable way in such a little, small amount of time. To be able to have a dialogue with that person where the conversation is directed by, you know, let let me get my views out there in a nuanced way oh, and, and, and let yeah. you have a dialogue with me. Um, it's just not there. There's no potential for that to to even occur. Uh, and I've heard interviews with, you know, with people on, on the TV uh, and then that same person will appear on somebody's uh, podcast or, or interview program where they have the opportunity to, to expound on their views for over an hour long. And all of a sudden somebody who is perceived as, you know, uh, He's this way or that way, or he's a you know leftist or a communist or he's a right way, whatever it might be. Now all of a sudden they're able to explain their views and make some sense, and it's like, oh, okay, I can see that, or you know, I can see where this is uh, taking place. And when the stakes are so high in certain in certain areas like presidential politics or um, you know anything that's related to to the social discourse right now, um, you know those those thirty second interviews. I wonder what the worth what the, what What's their worth? Oh, it's much uh, worse than this. Uh, these days, uh, I think since forever, journalists have been covering political campaigns like horse races and the gotcha syst- uh, system of, of seeing a gaffe. Right. right. And they don't even analyze positions and issues. And issues aren't a part of this anymore, if they ever were. Yeah, in the 60s they were. In the 60s they were, and then I came here. <laughs> right. Um, but, but yeah, uh, what you're saying is absolutely true. And, and television and radio 
aren't set up for that kind of long-form discussion of issues, and I'm afraid that your average listener, viewer, reader isn't either. If he was once, fine. But I remember back when I was a kid, movies were three hours long. Yeah, I can't do that anymore. Today, no. they're an hour and a half. Why is that? And half of it is, is explosions and car chases, right? <laughs> that right. too. Yeah, you know, it, 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 it's documented. These folks don't make hour and a half long movies because they, that's all they have to say. They're making hour and a half long movies because they know that's the oh. most people are willing to sit down for. And so we're losing our attention span little by little as the years go along. And a 10-second sound bait's all you're going to get on radio or TV. And I, I think it's it's the end of democracy. I won't go any farther than that. Do you think that we're losing our attention span as as human as the you know as as Homo sapiens as lo- are losing their attention span because of what's going on to shape the psychology of, of people, or do you think that there is perhaps a large amount of the population right now that is just not served by the mainstream media and that is hungry for more nuanced conversation or in-depth conversation. Okay, it does so, have the attention span, but the media perhaps just feels that in order to be competitive mm-hmm. with the social media atmosphere where everybody has a platform, that they have to also All right. go with that. So that, that's that, why we're here, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah but I... I <laughs> so the <laughs> second part of that, uh, that, that article I told you about was that, uh, uh, that newspapers have to stop running editorials. Uh, that that was fine in the 1800s, uh, but these days you don't get to write an article just because you own the building. Uh, and then, uh, going back to, to broadcast media, uh, I had said no more live interviews, and I suggested setting up one station in a crowded market that works according to these new rules, where there's no editorializing on the TV station and no live interviews. Everything is edited and uh, vetted in advance, and so that you know that when you turn on the news on that station, professionals have done it right. Is there anyone and doing then, this today? No. And then see if, in fact, people would tune in. I was assured that, of course, nobody would. I'm not sure. You're not sure. No. Uh, but that's the way to test it. That's the way to test it. Um my own uh, experience with attention span, since I do lectures and like that, is to keep it keep it brief. Jump from subject to subject. You've probably run into that as well. Yeah, although I often get stuck with groups who want to keep me in, and the, the, the tour guides have to take them away after yeah. an hour and a half, two hours. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, uh, I get that as well. I'm talking within the lecture. Within the, yes, yes. Within the lecture, yes. you can't go on and on about it, but one subject no, for more than... It's got to be interactive, yeah, questions, yeah, yeah, uh, discussion. Yeah, right. I hate that. <laughs> the the new form of, of lectures is that some guy gets stands up in front of a group and everybody gets to express his opinion. And I'm sitting there thinking, I didn't come to hear these schmucks. I came to hear the expert. <laughs> but, you know, who listened? Uh, um, so my, my first book is called Broken Spring. It's about Arab Spring. My second book, as you mentioned, is called Why Are We Still Afraid? Uh, I actually have a cover for my third book, and it has me with sticking my finger in the air, and it says, no one listens to me. <laughs> what, what are you working on? <laughs> Not working on that's a joke. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Although i got to say, I've, um, I've gone through most of uh, Why Are We Still Afraid, uh, and, and it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Uh, Thank you. You, you take um, 
Um, and I encourage people to go uh, on Amazon and uh, purchase it. Um, it's very readable. Um, and you take the reader through essentially your articles over the years, mm-hmm. uh, edited. Um, and Not really. Oh, no. No, no. I, I also put in the ones where I screwed up. Okay. Oh, sure. <laughs> fair is fair, right? Fair is fair. And then you intersperse them with narrative that connects the story and adds yes. modern perspective. So it's 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 really uh, an interesting way to report on the story of Israel. Uh, tell tell us why why you came to write that book, uh, or how you came to write. Yeah, that book. sure. Um, how I came was one day I got up on a ladder and went up into the boydom, the, the, the attic, and took down this box. I knew it had some old articles in it, just for fun. I started reading these articles and realized, geez, most of these things stand up. Let's see what we can do with this, right? And then I, I started realizing that this tells a story that isn't told today. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the, the title, Why Are We Still Afraid?, begs the question. Right, so who, who's we in the story? We are Israeli voters, and we are still afraid, uh, I think, primarily because the government benefits from that. Uh, we are still afraid of the, of, of the Palestinians. We're afraid of Iran. Uh, we're afraid of, of, of all kinds of enemies, when in fact we don't have any reason to be. Uh, we'll get into Iran later. I have every reason to believe, because sure. I know we disagree about that subject deeply. I, I, most I know Iran a little bit. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> me too. Um, that comes from my two years in Cairo, where I actually got to talk to people in Iran, which is kind of neat. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway. We'll, we'll uh, get to Cairo in a little yeah, bit, because yeah, I'm sure. sure there's a ton of great stories from Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, and it, it, it occurred to me that what we were seeing here was uh, an Israel of the 70s that was weak, vulnerable, and arrogant. How, how can you be weak, vulnerable, and arrogant? You got to live in Israel to do that, Right. I mean, how else do you explain the, the, that six months before the, the 1973 war that almost threw us in the sea? I was here then. We were that close to getting thrown in the ocean. Uh, six months before that, uh, uh, the defense minister, uh, the uh, renowned Moshe Dayan, was saying, I'd rather have Sharm el-Sheikh with no peace than peace with no Sharm el-Sheikh. Sinai Desert, in other words. Right, after the stunning and, and overwhelming victory of 67. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They got, and I, and, and I relate this in the book as well, my downstairs neighbor at the time who was a, uh, a lecturer at three universities, no dummy, uh, and I was fresh off the boat, basically from, from America, was trying to persuade me that Israel is a world military power. <laughs> Not a regional military power, mind you, world but power. a world military power. And nothing I could say could persuade this guy differently. This is like coming 30 years after your parents survived the Holocaust. Yeah. And we're a world military power. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, okay. you could say well, we are today. Um, in some ways we are. In a lot of ways. But we sure as hell weren't then. Sure, sure. Okay. Uh, so that's how do you be weak and vulnerable and arrogant? There you are. Mm-hmm. And the economy, of course, was a disaster. Right. Disaster. I mean, and that was a time uh, when defense spending was was probably what a quarter of uh, GDP. Uh, I think more. Yeah. Wow, thirty five percent, as I recall. It's uh, insane. I have to look that so up. So if people yeah. are if people aren't familiar, uh, a lot of advanced countries aren't aren't spending more than two percent. A lot of them are even right. below two percent. I think America is in the few percents, and then mm-hmm. we now, um, even with all our uh, threats and and uh, military efforts. 
Uh, I think we're at about five, six percent of of GDP. I thought it was a little more than that, but I get, get not a, not a whole you, lot, right? Depends how you figure it so, with the so, American aid and all that, so, right? Whatever. So to yeah. consider, you know, we were once over thirty percent is astronomical. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And of course, it distorted the entire economy at the time, et cetera, et cetera. But in any event, uh, get back to the book here. Uh, it, it, it occurred to me that we were seeing this picture of 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 a uh, of an Israel that people just don't know about. In the 70s and 80s, even the 90s, it's a it's a picture uh, of a country that seems so different from the way it's perceived today uh, that I thought, let's just present this. So, so what's the difference? What's the Israel that actually exists, and what are people still seeing in their mind's eyes? Is that, is that a yeah? Is that's that a figure fine. of speech, a mind's eye. Can we say that? You can say I, that. I've heard that. that Your yeah. mind's okay. eye. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. I find myself, you know, after almost 50 years here, doing stuff in translation. <laughs> sometimes you can get good, uh, yeah, you know, good phrases out of that. Yeah, sometimes. Otherwise, not so good. <laughs> uh, it's the opposite today. We are today strong. Uh, we have, okay, the COVID-19 crisis is putting a bit of a pin in this, but it's temporary. We have a, a very strong, we have the strongest economy in the region. By far. By far, uh, we have the strongest military pound for pound uh, that, that anyone in the region. Uh, we can handle our threats. Uh, I won't say without casualties, of course. If we get into a war, people are going to get killed, and, and we're talking civilians as well. That's what war is about. But there's no question how it turns out. And uh, yet, yet. We run our election campaigns largely on who's going to be nastier to the Palestinians than the next guy, and who's going to be tougher on Iran than the next guy. Yeah, well, I mean, on Iran, I think there's there's consensus across the board here uh, within the Jewish parties. Uh, mm-hmm. But on the Palestinians, I, I mean, I think you've seen over the years, um, the parties that have tried to get away from that issue just fall flat on their faces. I know, that's the problem. And how can that be when, when you know, I agree with you here, uh, the Palestinians do not present a military threat. They present a very different kind of threat, I think, uh-huh. to us, but they don't present a military threat to us. Well, not only don't they present a military threat, they also don't present a political opportunity. There is no reason to be dealing with Palestinians today on the national level, uh, simply because, as I write in the book, and I, I've got personal experience with this, the Palestinians were offered a state according to their own demands. Right, the same ones that they keep saying in English, at least, that that's what they yeah, want. Yeah, in, in 2000 and 2008, and they turned them both down flat. So why are we talking about more negotiations with the Palestinians? It's a waste of time. Well, we're not. Well, we, some of them are and some of them aren't. We're still, we're still running election campaigns about how the Palestinian threat, and if there's a Palestinian state, they'll be firing uh, 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 rockets at Ben-Gurion Airport, and they'll be destroying Tel Aviv. I've got that message today on Facebook with one of my friends. Are you kidding me? This is total, total nonsense. Do you think it's a waste of time? It's a total waste of time. Yet, we have domestic issues that are really important. Look what's going on now with the health service. Right. It's about to get overwhelmed right. by, uh, by not much of a pandemic as far as the numbers here are concerned. Right? Let's take the school system as well. It also is, is having tremendous difficulty adapting to the, the idea of learning online partially and in person partially because it's overwhelmed by huge classes, shortages of teachers, yeah. 
and way, way too much overspending on administration and bureaucracy and whatever. We, we have things we need to fix here. The health system, first and foremost. And the health system, it's one of my soapboxes, so you'll have to give me a minute. Please. The health system is one of these very few problems you can fix by throwing money at it. You can build hospitals, you can build medical schools, not to build them actually, but attract uh, top-notch medical students and nurses. It'll take about 10 years, several billion billion dollars a year, and we've got it fixed. Well, why spend money on the medical system when you could just have three elections in a year? Well, that too, but... Uh, the point I'm trying to make, because I assume some some of your audience is in America. I, I would assume a lot of them are, yeah. Yeah, okay. Hi, folks. Um, I'm really sorry about those of you who are out of work now and lost your health insurance. That would not happen here. Every Israeli has got health insurance, good health insurance. The basic health insurance was enough to cover, um, well, personally, was enough to cover... Uh, my angioplasty. Four years ago, whatever it was. It's shocking that America is. is yeah. I mean. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, and we talk so, about this in any context that America doesn't have basic yeah. health insurance. So if if as I'm saying, if if our health uh, service has uh, not kept up with the population growth, which has been outstanding. Look at when I made Aliyah in 1972, there were 3.2 million people here. Now there are like nine million right. people, tripled. In less than 50 years, not much less, but you know, <laughs> uh, and, and it means you the health service also should have tripled and it hasn't, and it hasn't, right? It hasn't, and the schools should have tripled and they haven't, but they can. But we're still voting about Palestinians. Yeah. <laughs> would you please give me a break? My point is that do you any think that that government, would, uh, sorry, just sorry, a second, you, sure. any government would handle Iran exactly the same way, sure. turn it over to the army. So, why are we voting about it? Palestinians likewise. Yeah. Any military threat comes, the army will deal with it, and everyone would say the same thing. So why are we voting about that? Right. Why aren't we voting on who's going to do best with the health system? Who's going to do best with the education system? Does it is it free market? Is it socialism? What's going to be best? And let's vote like every other nation in the world votes on economic terms. And uh, for some reason, we don't. And for some and we reason, don't. we don't. And I, and I get into this. My wife is a teacher. She's an elementary school teacher. And we often talk about this exact, uh, in this exact topic of why is it that the people that are working in these fields and the people that use these fields, that use these, that engage with these fields, whether it's the parents with their, with, their, with, their, with, their, with their children or us that go and engage with the health system here, we know that there are problems. Yet, we don't demand much of a change to take place unless... Uh, unless, unless there's a crisis, unless there's a crisis, uh-huh. Israel's always kind of been this been this country where, at least in my in my view, we always react when it's too late and there's been some sort of a major catastrophe or disaster, and then we have some sort of a uh, you know a, a board of inquiry to try to see what went wrong. Yeah, when when the answers are kind of written on the wall, so. I want to take you back to what you were saying before because you mentioned that the health system and, and the issues with the healthcare system here are kind of one of your soapbox issues. Do you anticipate that there will be some sort of a, a, a shift in how we handle the health system now that we've seen it react to a crisis? No. As long as we continue to vote for the wrong reasons and as long as uh, a, a, a candidate who runs on the platform of I want to be health minister 
doesn't even make it into the parliament. No, I don't. I don't see it. Until we, as an electorate, realize, understand that our issues are not the ones that we're actually voting on. Now, quite frankly, it is inaccurate to say that none of us are voting for domestic issues. In fact, most of us are. But enough of us aren't that we keep getting the same right-left split in this country, and there is no right-left split. There's no left. I actually wrote on this... um published a series of articles in the on each of the elections over the past year um, saying that the the right left split um, that we tend to refer to as Israelis has to do with the Palestinian issue yes. and, and that's not an issue anymore exactly because the the number of people who call themselves left wing on the Palestinian issue is minute there's a center that's really just an unconvinced right and then a right and then a further right that's kind of uh, you know we could say in right field there but the, you know there there's more issues at stake here and they did come up in to a certain extent in these elections so we have you know uh, take the cynicism and the personal politics play aside i think what lieberman was trying to do when he made his move in the first uh, i believe in the first series of the elections was he tried to shift the debate over to a matter of religion and state right yeah. so so the way i always explain it i'd like to hear your take on this um, I say there are four issues of right and left here. There's the Palestinian issue, which is just really not an issue right now. Mm-hmm. There's religion and state, which is actually a pretty big issue. Um, although the way that the parliament, that the coalition comes out, doesn't seem to reflect that for some reason. Then there is uh, an economic issue, which is also not really reflected because blue and white and Likud are essentially identical on economic issues. And then the last issue has to do, uh, which is could be a whole different debate, on uh, kind of populism versus uh, rule of law democracy. Mm-hmm. No, that, that, that's, uh, that's a pretty good summation of where we stand today. Uh, I think the last issue you mentioned really encompasses the other three. Mm. And I think that's also where we should be voting today, deciding whether we want to have uh, a, a system uh, of, of populism or a system of... Uh, of uh, free market stuff, right? Uh, and, and this is Democrats and Republicans, classically, not anymore, mm. right? Uh, and, and that sort of thing. Why, uh, can't, why can't we get past this as an electorate? Why are we stuck? Well, I'd hate to blame one person. Please. But <laughs> <laughs> look, We do it all the time. Look, uh, I don't really fault Netanyahu for continuing to bang on the Iran drum because he's been doing it for 25 years. Yeah. And it's very, very difficult for a politician to say, well, that didn't work. <laughs> Let's try something else. Uh, so he continues to bang on the drum. But we continue to to follow the beat. So um, my favorite political philosopher, my father, uh, used to say that in a democracy, the government reflects the type of society it represents. In other words, he said, the people get what they deserve. Yeah, what you deserve, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you've heard that one, right? Um, anyway, uh, so, so... No Trump jokes here. No, no, no. Where was your father, where was your father from? Cologne, Germany. Okay. Uh, he arrived in the United States at the age of 31. Um, he was a, a bookkeeper, First, he was a shoe salesman, then a bookkeeper, all five foot of him, uh, a, uh, a radical anti-racist. He worked in a foundry 
a, a small family-owned foundry where the uh, the owner was a, a profane, flaming, loudmouth racist, and most of his workers were black. Uh, and my father very quietly would invite the foreman and a couple other people over to our house from time to time. And when and he would take me with him. I'm talking when I'm eight or nine years old, going through the the floor of the factory uh, with my father. And uh, the people would stop and, and what they're doing and say, hi, Ernie. My father's name was Ernest, right? And uh, that's how, uh, how I was brought up. Very, that would very, have been uncommon for, for that time, no? Oh, absolutely. Like I'm saying, all five foot of him, right? right. You know. How do you get to Indiana? <laughs> There's a story. Okay, so <laughs> my parents caught, actually, they did catch the last boat to America before the war. Uh, they escaped from Germany in 1941. Oh, wow. Uh, they were more or less the only members of each of their families to escape. Uh, and they landed in New York. So they went to the, uh, they decided they didn't want to stay in New York. So they went to the agency dealing with German refugees. And the person in, in, in charge uh, said, okay, how about Birmingham, Alabama? Which my father said, uh, just a moment, please. Walked four blocks to the New York Public Library, opened a map of the United States, <laughs> saw where Birmingham, Alabama is, went back to the agency and said, no Birmingham, Alabama, it's in the south, it's too hot. <laughs> Fine, they said. How about Fort Wayne, Indiana? Where is that? It's in the north. Sure. Fine, we'll go there. <laughs> Great, terrific. So we go to Fort Wayne, Indiana, where it is hotter in the summer. Than Birmingham, Alabama. It's humid. It's, it's, it's very humid. In and twenty-five Indiana. degrees below zero. I remember yeah. playing ice hockey. No, that's that's uh, centigrade. Seventeen below zero yeah. uh, Fahrenheit. And I play ice hockey in the pond. And, you know, my hands were freezing. Never mind. Uh, and at the time in the forties, the city was run by German Lutherans. <laughs> so they really got him good. That's how they ended up in Fort Wayne. But then back then, when you were sent somewhere, you stayed. And they stayed, and they determined it was a good place to bring up kids. And uh, if nothing else, it accounts for my very flat Midwest broadcast accent. Which is actually, I, I, I dabbled in uh, broadcast journalism, not to your extent, of course, but uh, when I was younger. That is the standard journalism accent, isn't it, in America? With a couple little changes, yes. Yeah. And a couple of little changes that I made. Carry instead of carry. Carry. Carry instead of carry. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And there's one other, it doesn't matter. But yeah, so, so imagine if I'd been brought up in Alabama. Exactly. You couldn't have been a broadcaster. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so where were we with that? Where were we? Well, I, I always think that it's just interesting to see the, you know, the stories of, of how people wind up where they are because you and I moved to Israel. I mean, yeah. We knew where we were going to go. It wasn't, right. Right. and I'm not saying that that was the way it was for everybody here. You know, sometimes people got here and they said that they were going to be going to Jerusalem and they sent them on a bus to Demona and they didn't know that they were going. <laughs> but... You know, to come from halfway around the world to the United States was this huge, huge, well, huge land place. To be. And think about it, you didn't have social media. You couldn't look it up. You couldn't call people and ask how a place was. Right. Some yep. people went because the first family member ended up somewhere. Right. Mm-hmm. I think with our story, you know, they also got to um, to South Bend because that's where the train got off. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. you know, one relative wrote to the others and said, okay, I'm here. Come set up uh-huh. shop. And, yeah. You know, there was or you walked four blocks to the right. public library. It's like, it's like my mom's side of the family wound up in Minnesota because uh, my grandpa Jack was a fur trader. And that's where a lot of the fur yeah, sure. was being hunted and was being packaged and put on trains and sent to the east and sent to Europe and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And it's like, 
dude, like, <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? The yeah. frozen chosen. The frozen chosen. <laughs> uh, but but it, but it you know it's it's like that, and then it's um, it's it, and then here we are. So America has become this old country for yeah. us at least, and, yeah. and it's strange. You know, Dan and I talk about this all the time. It's strange to be witnessing from afar the events that are taking place in our you know in, in the country of our birth yeah and being in a country where you know yes you're talking about how the israeli population doesn't seem to be voting on the topics that they should be voting on but you know nobody here is in the in the in in there doesn't seem to be like a, a movement here to deconstruct society to its core and rebuild it from from scratch people by and large uh are proud to live here they're happy with the country and they may recognize its problems but you know they're they they want to live in a jewish state if they're you know by and large uh, well i mean i think what we're seeing now is is and what we've have been seeing and the kind of people that support netanyahu and the likud is this kind of they call it the second israel right the rise mm-hmm. of the second israel mm-hmm. um that is structural in a way and the kind of demands that they're making for the uh, justice system is structural in a way, not in, in the way that, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters are, are demanding, but but there is some structural change here. But um, it, how do we get over this? I mean, clearly, you know, uh, it was your son ran for Knesset, didn't he, uh, in, in one of these parties? Yeah, uh, uh, full disclosure, right. uh, the candidate I was talking about before is uh, uh, Orly Levy right. of, of Gesher, and my son is now her chief of staff. Oh, okay. So, so, so he's helping her out... Uh, yeah, connecting to communities or, or yeah, build, building up communities. It's crazy. I was actually in Bichan today, which mm-hmm. is where she's from. Yeah, and my wife mentions to me, she goes, "You know, I haven't been here in like five or six years, and I forgot. It it just looks like a wasteland. It's stuck in the seventies. It really is. Or, and and you're mm-hmm. driving around it, and we drove around it for for a good you know thirty minutes just because we we were in disbelief. Mm-hmm. Like it's not, it's not gone anywhere. It's, how it's how the is city it that the time is forgotten? And and the people that are there. Are living in the same country that you know Herzliya Pituach is in, and Tel Aviv is in, yeah. And and here we are in Rehovot, and the Weizmann Institute is right next door, and it's it's like there's legitimately two faces of Israel. Absolutely. Uh, many of our listeners that are in the states, you know, they they may not have seen those cities in Israel that are that are like this when they come here, but it it we call it the periphery here, right? right. The socioeconomic yeah. periphery. The farther it's not- you get away from Tel Aviv. Mm. The more likely you are to have a situation like you, you described, the Bechan. Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, uh, why isn't this the number one election ca- uh, uh, campaign issue? So, so why isn't it? I mean, do people really not understand? Uh, we, we're so proud. I, I often notice this. We're so proud how, you know, the high tech scene. We're so proud mm-hmm. proud of how militarily advanced we are. How can we be so proud and stuck with these fears that, that you know you talk about uh, and, and you really bring to light in the book? How, why are we still stuck with all these existential fears? Is this just two thousand years of you know baked into our DNA that we no can't no get no away no? Uh, my my son hates it when I say this, but I'll say it anyway. As long as the people that you mentioned in Beit Sha'an and that you mentioned in Demona, as long as the, those people vote against their own interests, then nothing's going to change. As long as they continue to vote against Arabs, and they do, yeah. and I don't, under, I, I don't uh, question for a moment why they do. They come from Arab countries, mm-hmm. or their fathers or their grandfathers came from Arab countries, where they were persecuted, and then they were pitched out with nothing. In 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 forty eight, when when yeah. uh, when when Israel was created, yeah, my family in fifty one had yeah. to leave Iraq uh, with all their possessions and belongings and nice house behind. Yes, 
for example. So that, that's going to take generations to overcome. And anyone who comes along and says, I'm going to be tougher on the Arabs than my opponent, is going to get their vote. Now, the fact that the same person is, is building up uh, a, uh, uh, a second economy of people with, uh, with, with uh, villas and, and fancy cars and trips to broad uh, uh, to, to buy furs and jewels doesn't seem to bother them as much as it should. Uh, if someone were to come along and, and offer them a, a proper economic redevelopment program, uh, as opposed to voting against Arabs, maybe it would work. It's already been tried. It didn't work. Yeah, people aren't voting for that. The Labor Party once tried to sure. reinvent itself as a social justice party and got six seats. Yeah. Well, I hate to, I hate to say this, but here we are, and you know, we're having this conversation, which is kind of a journalisticish, interviewish conversation. And you're a journalist. Is it not somehow the role of the media to be prying and, pot- and, and poking the candidates for their positions on these sort of issues? And why is the, uh, you know, why what what's the role in the, of the press here in Israel of okay. redirecting that conversation? I was a journalist. I'm retired. I'm uh, out of daily news now, and I'm really thankful to the good Lord that I am. That means you can say what you want. Not only that, <laughs> uh, I no longer have to take part in this charade that used to be my profession. Charade. Right. Well, the idea that uh, journalists have a responsibility to their audience is nonsense. Today, journalists have a responsibility to the ratings. Uh, journalists and newspapers have a responsibility to try to somehow get through the day doing the work of five people because the other four have been fired. Yeah, you see this now happening. Uh, Channel 13 here is yes. firing a lot of its people. Yeah. Massive yeah. layoffs. Yeah. And and. Uh, at, at the time I started at the Associated Press office in Jerusalem in 1999, 98, 98, doesn't matter, uh, we had in our office, we had 16 people. Covering? Covering uh, Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. When I left, there were three. Three. There was a bureau chief, uh, a monitor who listened to the news at night with no one else in the office. I was the night editor. They didn't replace me when I moved to Cairo, 2011. Uh, and there was one reporter and a, a couple of part-timers. That, that was it. That's unbelievable. And how many of that staff was from Israel, Israelis, were living in Israel and not on temporary assignment? By then, all but one. All but one. Um and correct me if I'm wrong, but Israel didn't Israel used to be one of the most uh, staffed foreign posts for 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 a lot of different media organizations. Oh, don't get me wrong; it's not as though people didn't want to come here. Just that the uh, that the powers that be in New York got down the staff; they were no longer fun because it's not profitable. Uh, whatever you know, yeah. they figured they can do it with enough uh, to do it with three people instead of sixteen, fourteen, whatever it was. So that's how, going that on affect, all over the world. How does that affect your ability? Uh, you know, taking you back to then, how did that affect your ability to report on what's happening? Okay, look at when you are a full-time reporter and you have a beat, which wire service folks don't usually have a beat, but we tend to gravitate one direction or another. You develop sources. Uh, you can call someone on the phone uh, and just get a, 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 got the Hebrew word, what is it in English? Tiduch. 
uh, briefing. briefing. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Shimon Paris did that to me once because <laughs> I couldn't come up with a word in English, and he did. <laughs> um, to get corrected by Shimon Paris in your own language, yeah, your, your yeah, own, uh, yeah. Anyway, mother tongue. Yeah. Um, when you're the only guy in the sh- in, in in the shop, when you're the only uh, a person who's who's called a reporter. You have to you have to count on official spokesmen, uh, and there's nothing wrong with official spokesmen except that they have a job to do, and their job may or may not be to tell you everything that's going on, uh, and they're just not as good as as, uh, as as people you have a cup of coffee with or something stronger, and who know you personally. Uh, just that's uh, the ABC of journalism, right? Right, and and it no longer exists. Now, especially when that one person has also got to do all that tweeting. Much less cover a story and write it up. He has to tweet while he's doing it. Come on, people. You know, this is, this is not my profession. It makes the job impossible. And also, as I mentioned before, uh, the, the goals of the, of the profession are different. Watch any Israeli TV newscast and watch the interviews that are done. Do they ask for policy? Usually not. They look for someone to blame for something. Or they look for usually for a comment on the most recent thing that happened. That right? too. But they're not asking for policy. They're not asking for solutions. They're asking for gotcha. You know, it's interesting you say the gotcha. I've been, you know, um, clearly we're all following uh, Trump. Um, and, and we here in Israel are following Israeli politics. It seems like the gotcha doesn't even matter anymore. Um, uh, you know, I'll bring this up for the point of of the point and not necessarily to, to go after one party or one politician or another, a prominent politician. Um, I've heard multiple times over the past week was gotcha to his face, including playing the clips of him a week before saying the complete opposite thing. And just doesn't care anymore. It it seems like, you know, politicians, uh, you know, we kind of always joke that they always lie or they always say one thing and do the other. They don't even seem to care that when they're caught doing that, is that, is that, just the way I see it now, or is something actually changed? No, something's definitely changing. I mean, back in the day, uh, I'm going to sound like an old man now. Well, folks, <laughs> uh, back in the day, we uh, started out with an agreed set of facts and disagreed over how to interpret them or how to formulate policy uh, with this, these facts as a given. Today, we don't agree on facts. And what the yeah, facts alternative are. facts right yeah the, the new term. I mean today uh, if I say the sun rises in the east someone's going to say that's your opinion you know nothing is, is agreed so how can you possibly have a debate that reaches any kind of conclusion if you don't agree on the basics which are the facts which is necessary for a society uh, to, to just basically function. Right. Well, it's certainly necessary for democracy to for function. democracy for, to function. Yeah. And I'm very pessimistic about the uh, about the future when it comes to being able to to uh, elect someone on the basis of policy and facts. Yeah. Anyway, journalists aren't chasing policy today. Yeah. Uh, they're they're chasing all the superficial stuff that apparently they think people want. Hmm. And maybe if my one television station I talked about before actually goes on the air and starts doing it right. Let's see who watches, if well, anybody. If anybody's uh, listening here and wants to fund uh, such a project, yeah. we, we have the person who can mentor it <laughs> and uh, 
with great pleasure. Help get it off the ground. <laughs> yeah. Might even anchor one of the shows if I... There you go. He's still, he's still got the voice, I gotta tell you. Still got the voice. Um, you know, I don't know if you were paying attention to uh, the news today, right before you came here, but uh, at least as far as, as the things we were following, right. uh, we saw that uh, one of the op-ed editors and, and columnists at the New York Times, Barry Weiss, resigned very publicly. Yes. Um, you know, because she refused to toe the line. Um, um, and I know uh, you've been, you know, from your time at AP, you had an issue uh, where you didn't want to toe a certain line um, that AP was pushing. I'd be glad to, uh, if you want to get into that. Sure. Uh, it. Where to start? Let's start with... Uh, Usually the beginning. No? Yeah, the beginning. Where's the beginning? Probably Watergate. But when it comes to here, why did the media turn uh, into anti-Israel or at least pro-Palestinian or a little combination of both? When did it happen and why did it happen? Uh, I can tell you when I perceived of it happening. Uh, I was in uh, uh, the backseat of a car in Gaza in early 1988, uh, and we drove right into the middle of a riot. So this was, the for those listeners uh, who don't recall, this was the beginning of the first intifada. That's right. The first uprising um, uh, by by the Palestinians, a popular uprising against uh, uh, essentially the Israeli military occupation of Gaza. That's right. And I can also at this point say that uh, I've got, what I'm about to tell you, I've got it on tape. I've got it on tape. So maybe we can add that to the show notes uh, for the podcast. Sure. Uh, it's already part of a lecture, which is you on my YouTube channel, whatever. So we drive into this uh, this, this this riot in, in a car with foreign plates. Uh, there's a driver in the front seat as a wire service reporter. I won't identify the reporter. Uh, and I'm in the back seat. I won't identify her because she's still working, and this isn't a personal thing. It's a media-wide thing I'm going to describe. So they start pelting our car with rocks. Uh, I've got my tape recorder running. When this Palestinian with, with crazed eyes circling in, in, in his head and a, a, a cement block held over his head r- races toward our car, heaves the block right through the back window and off my, off my face. Oh wow! And my, you know, my microphone's live, and my tape recorder is running, recording all this stuff. Okay, great piece of sound. What happens afterwards is a little less funny. The wire service reporter gets out of the car, and she screams, "Why? Why are you doing this? We're trying to help you. Trying to help him. She's chosen. you, all of you guys. She's chosen the side." Chosen aside. Unbelievable. Exactly. Thinking to myself, we're not trying to help anybody. We're trying to report the bloody news. That's my job. I'm supposed to be reporting the news and then tell you what it means in a context. That's my job. I'm not trying to help anybody here. But we're trying to help you. Yes, exactly. They've chosen sides. Uh, they have chosen... Uh, and there's no way that she could have meant that in like a... We're trying to help you by getting your story out to the world the way you want to tell it. Oh, so, no, it was no, like no, direct. No, 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 like no. I'm on your side, buddy. We're trying to help you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I the the rest of the history of of the coverage of this and practically every other network shows very clearly what she meant. 
they chose sides. Uh, they chose sides uh, the way people choose sides. Uh, as I say in my lectures, you're a football fan. You're watching ESPN. You turned on. You just turned on the thing, and there's a, two teams playing. You never heard of either one of them. It's twenty-one to seven. Who are you going to vote? Who are you going to root for? Don't you naturally root for the underdog? Don't you want to see him catch sure. up? Unless you right? know, unless, unless you know that that underdog teams. lost four scholarships because of of uh, some kind of corruption, and then twenty one has, hasn't won a football game in ten years. You don't know that because there's no context. There's no context. So you're rooting for the underdog. Well, it's obvious that the Palestinians here are the underdog, and the Israelis with the jackboots and the guns are 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 the bad guys. So it so therefore. The coverage has got to fit into that little shoebox. And if it doesn't, it doesn't go on the wire. It got to... Well, was this an editorial decision? Is this coming from New York? Is it, where, where, it, yeah, is it like, a, like a guy in a room somewhere making a decision like, hey, no, we've no. been too good to Israel. We should probably... No, I don't think so. Uh, the uh, It started really with the first intifada, the, the uprising in late 87 where this image of Palestinian youngsters throwing rocks at heavily armed Israeli soldiers uh, made it so obvious who the underdog sure, is here. Right. Yeah, the, the classic picture of the, the the person standing in front of the boy, right, standing in front of the tank. Yeah, Tenement Square. Tenement Square. No, no, there's a, a similar picture of the Intifada, if I'm not mistaken. I don't, I'm not aware of it, but I would I, I can find it while you speak. That's okay. okay. It, I, I assume it could be done. Uh, in any event... Uh, the, this I don't think was a conscious decision. It's just the way the the, uh, the media were operating back at that time, and still are. Uh, you go in with this idea that I'm going to speak truth to power. No, I don't speak truth to power. The advocates can speak truth to power. I'll report what they say and check out if what they're if what they're saying uh, stands up to the facts they're quoting or not. That's my job. I don't speak truth to anybody. So, so, so now that we've established that this is the way that it is, uh, how screwed are we? You don't ha- you don't know the half of it. Oh my god! All right, I'll, I'll fast forward hey, as they let, say. Well, let's let's go back before we fast forward. First of all, the, found I, the I found picture. the picture, but it's from the second intifada. So that's the famous. Oh yeah, I know that the famous yeah, picture yeah, yeah, of yeah. a boy getting ready to to throw a slingshot at a uh, yeah, tank. Yeah, it's from uh, October two thousand, the second intifada, not the right. first. My okay, bad. fair enough. Um, do you, so you don't think that the origins? You know, everyone talks about. Uh, I've written about this. Um, half of you know every Israeli and Jewish newspaper writes about right the anti Israel bias in the Western media. You don't think it comes? I mean, you were there. You don't think it comes from a place of some kind of latent anti Semitism? Or, you know, something like that? I do know of a couple of reporters who were anti-Semites, but only a couple of the dozens or hundreds I've known. No, I don't. Uh, I think it's a, a sickness much deeper than that. It's a sickness that has enveloped my entire industry. Which Not is- just here, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that that this, this, this uh, telling truth to power and uh, supporting the underdogs stuff... Uh, I saw it in Egypt. I saw it everywhere I go. I see it, and and uh, it's just not what I signed up for. First of all, and secondly, it, it's not it's not proper news coverage either. Right. So no, I don't think it's, it's editorializing the news. But uh, yeah, I don't think it's anti-Semitism. You don't you don't think it's coming from there. So you, no, you think it, it came from uh, a point of origin of wanting uh, of 
coming in without context and wanting to show a good story, right? That because, too. And of course, while we're talking about that, uh, as I said, the, the, the cutbacks in, in, uh, that have been brought on by anti-social media because they took all their advertising money away yeah. uh, means that more and more stories need to be covered either by stringers on the ground, who are in this case Palestinians, and or uh, firemen who, who parachute in to cover a major story and don't know where the hell they are. So they interview the first person they see? Or... Yeah, well, I remember uh, back in the early 80s, a, uh, oh, his name I'll give if I can remember it, uh, one of the Washington Post uh, uh, Watergate guys, Carl New. Before our time. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that hurt. That really hurt. <laughs> Carl Bernstein. Okay. <laughs> they thought you were going to go for Bob Woodward. And then no, and no. They say, it, yeah, Bob Woodward. Yeah, okay. right. Uh, so Carl Bernstein uh, parachutes in to cover the, uh, the Lebanon war, and we're all standing outside the prime minister's office on a Sunday to cover the weekly cabinet meeting. We all, the foreign correspondents, you know. Um, and here comes Carl Bernstein going down the line, talking to each reporter to try to find out what the hell is going on here. As he's getting to me, I'm thinking, this guy makes in a week what I make in a decade. Why did I fill him full of all kinds of... I'm trying to think of a a printable word to use for this one. (laughs) Gold? (laughs) Yeah, and and, and see what happens. But of course, being a uh, proper moral person and a uh, 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 determined and truthful journalist, of course, I briefed him as best I could with what was actually going on. And don't you think he went on the air that night and got it all wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this is this is uh, another another part of the problem, and that the uh, the experts aren't here anymore; they don't right. exist. The talking heads in uh, in Washington, yeah. or London, or or wherever they may yeah be. yeah. But the guys on the ground, the ones who know know their way around, they're not here anymore. They're, what about what about English language uh, Israeli media like Times of Israel or Jerusalem Post? The work that they're doing now. Well, in general, I think I find the Israeli media, for the most part, to be, um, uh, they're to be very, pretty good. They're parochial. Okay. This is something I discovered, uh, that, that there's a big, long, big, large world out there that they're either not aware of or don't care about. Hmm. Uh, and and their, their focus, just as I guess it naturally would be, is Israel against the world. Provin- provincial? Provincial. Yeah. Yeah, both of them. Uh they make it sound pretty good sometimes. They have some people who write with long sentences and big words, but pretty much provincial. Um, so at AP, did you try to, um, I mean, you, you were aware of this since the late 80s. Did you try to change this culture? Did you try to fight against I it? I did. Of course I did. And I found myself in the very uncomfortable position of being the pro-Israel advocate in the office. And I did not sign up for that. and I did not want to do that. I don't believe it's my job to be anybody's advocate. Uh, I'm trying to cover the news. But I kept getting into battles over, oh, nonsense like whether, the, whether to, to call the, the neighborhoods in East Jerusalem settlements. Right? I said no, not for political reasons, but for communication reasons. A settlement in the eye of a reader in Dubuque, Iowa, is a bunch of trailers on a hilltop. Gilo is a, is a neighborhood of sixty thousand people. It's not a settlement. Oh, it's a suburb. Uh, yeah. If anyone who's well, been there, call it it's what as you want. Call it, call it disputed if you like, but settlement it ain't. I lost that one. 
I lost pretty much all of them. And I'll tell you now about the biggest one I lost. I was, uh, I, I'm known for my, for my wide bottom, which is to say I sit and read a lot. <laughs> uh, it, it's, uh, it's unusual among journalists today, and it was unusual in 2009 when I'm talking about this. Uh, I was sitting on my wide bottom one day reading through uh, a, uh, a stack of, of translations uh, of, of Al Jazeera interviews in Arabic. And I came across an interview with Saeed Arakat, who at the time was the chief Palestinian negotiator in talks with Israel. I think he still is, even though there are no talks. Yeah, <laughs> uh, probably is, but he's also the head of the PLO now. So Is he? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, so he's a bigger cheese than he was then. Now, Saib and I go back a long way. I, I knew him before he was Saib Arakat, and I also discovered... What was he, his name back then? No, no. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that he, like... like John I, Smith. Yeah, right. Uh, is a night owl. Uh-huh. Okay, so as the night editor of the Associated Press, from time to time I would need a, a comment from a Palestinian in the middle of the night, and I knew I could call outside because he's up. If I'm up, he's up. <laughs> but I also knew do not call Saib Arikat at 10 o'clock in the morning, because any more than you call me at 10 o'clock right. in the morning. <laughs> All right, so Saib is, is getting interviewed by, by Al Jazeera, and there's four or five people there. This is in the 90s? This was in uh, 2008. 2008. Okay, so the the last time we had negotiations. Uh, yeah, 2008. Uh, Prime Minister. The interview, uh, actually, the interview I believe was in April 2009. The talks he's talking about were in in late 2008. Uh, and it was pretty heated interview as it gets on Al Jazeera. If you've ever watched it, it's a very animated character. Yeah, and there's a lot of people yelling at each other, and Saib all of a sudden spilled. The entire beans, the whole bag of beans of what Israel had offered the Palestinians. They offered them a state in the West Bank and Gaza and a, a corridor between the two and territorial uh, exchanges to make up 100% of the territory they were demanding. This was the most far-reaching offer Israel had offered the Palestinians. Yes. Right. yes. And Saeb said that Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, turned him down flat. Why, he said, I have other reasons to believe, he said because Abbas said, we will not compromise over one square inch of Jerusalem. Israel was offering them pieces of Jerusalem as their capital. But not the old city. Not the old city. Right. Uh, So that that was the official reason why uh, they turned it down? Okay. Okay, but and Saib was upset about that. No, he was the chief negotiator. No, I mean he was upset that his that what he had successfully negotiated or what he was offered was not being. No, no, no. He was totally on board with it. Okay, totally on board with it. Um, now here's the thing: no one had heard of this offer when I read that. No, not in this detail. No one realized. And it took me one phone call to find out that Ehud Olmert had offered him a map. And he said, sign it. Really? Because we always hear there's never been a map, right? So this is, this is groundbreaking, what, what you uncovered. Oh, yes. And not only that, uh, uh, the Times of Israel uh, reporter found out that uh, after turning it down flat and, and, and slamming the door and never meeting Olmert again as prime minister... 
Abbas raced back to Ramallah and drew the outlines of the map he had just seen, and, and that I have. You have the map that he it's drew? It's in the book. Ah. Let's see, where, where did I put the copy of the book? <laughs> okay. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so there, there was that as well. Wow. So All right, now, did that make the news? Here's what happened. Yeah. So I said, no one had heard of this. And Sayab is an official spokesman speaking on the record in Arabic, no language problems, right? Uh, so I, shall we say, recognized there it, it. There it is, page 360. We'll try, we'll try to get that up on the, uh, okay. on the website also. Yeah, make sure. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the one. Yeah. I can give you a, a, a better. What I've discovered here is that my five-year-old could draw a better map than Mahmoud Abbas. Yeah. Not a well, very good map. Well, he is left-handed, you know. <laughs> I won't hold it against. I, I I notice these things, so I'm ambidextrous, right? and so my, my wife drives her crazy. I notice who's left-handed. <laughs> anyway, uh, I realized what I had there. This was at a time when Israel had, had was, anyone reported this? No, nobody reported. This no, was a huge scoop. A huge scoop. And this is not a one-day story. This this changes sure. everything. Absolutely. This changes everything. I knew what I had here, and I went into my boss's office. I told him what we had, and my boss's reaction was, eh, that's not news. I said, what? Said, yeah, that doesn't sound, doesn't sound like news to me. How does that not sound like news? I never got a logical explanation now that could possibly not be news. But he said, you're not going to write about this, and you're not going to make any more phone calls. Because it doesn't fit the narrative. How Maybe. else can you possibly explain it? You can't. I couldn't. I couldn't. What but, happened next? Uh, I started uh, going to Cairo. And within two years, I'd moved there. Ended my career in Cairo. Slammed the door like uh, like Abbas did and never looked back. I, I want to come back to Cairo in a second here while yeah. we're still talking. About I'm saying that that's, I, I needed to get out of the business. I had on my, at that time, I put a clock on my desktop. My computer desktop that counted backwards. Wow. It counted backwards to when I would reach age 65, and the, 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 the clock was labored countdown to retirement. That, that, that was day, the uh, straw that, that broke day. your journalistic yes, back. I could not, you know, I was unemployable otherwise, as I was already 63, right? I'm not going to sure. get another job anywhere. So I had to, you know, to, to, to write it out. Now, as it turned out, I worked till sixty-six because uh, I got myself I got myself transferred to Cairo, and just has, so happened I got myself transferred to Cairo as Arab Spring began. <laughs> Sometimes you got to be lucky. You got to break. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why, so, why, why do you think Abbas really turned down that peace plan? If that's everything that they publicly say that they want, I believe it's because of the refugees. They had promised the refugees from the, from the day that the state of Israel was. Uh, was was created that they would be returning to their homes, including the village that's under the Malchamal in, in in Jerusalem, and the one that's under runway number one at Ben Gurion Airport. They're going to go back to their villages. They promised them. They had the little keys hanging on their wall, and uh, there was nobody who had enough political clout to tell the refugees, "Listen, guys, you're not going to those homes. You're going to our new home." You're coming to our state, the only Palestinian state in the history of the world, and you're going to help us build it into the best state, you know, 
make Palestine great again, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there was nobody who had the clout to do that. Arafat couldn't do it or didn't think he could do it in 2000 when he turned down a similar plan that Ayyub Barak offered him. Right. And Abbas certainly could not do it. Well, if Arafat's not going to do it, there's no... And there's no point. There's no other... Is there a leader today, I don't know how much you follow closely Palestinian politics, who, who has that kind of clout? No. Who, right? No. I, I don't see anyone on the horizon. No. Marwan Barghouti, but sure, Amazing. you know, but but who knows? Who knows? Do you think that with the younger generation of Palestinians that uh, you know that grew up uh, in my generation, being perhaps more pragmatic, and, and you know, understanding that they're not going to go back to a village that's underneath Ben Gurion Airport's running runway number one, there could perhaps be a chance, uh, you know, during the next, you know, several decades for somebody to come up and say, look. We can be courageous enough to say this. You're not going back to the to the to the village that no longer exists. You're going to go back, you know, to the new state and help us build it, and not be worried about political assassination or repercussions or no whatever. No, <laughs> no, no. It's just this. How do this I see holy this? Of holies. Yeah, yeah. No, the the. Uh, I don't see it ever happening. Uh, I do see the conflict being resolved in uh, uh, in a way that's somewhat less than peace by this also in the book <laughs> that there will be a realignment of the middle east that will get rid of the 1921 borders that were artificially imposed on the nation on the nations by uh by by the the colonial powers and in the framework of that there will be some kind of resolution to the israel-palestinian issue uh for when it comes to borders someone's going to impose borders on both of us yeah there, there doesn't see, seem to be any other kind of uh local solution at least looming in our no, foreseeable no. futures no there's no point in more negotiations uh it's the old einstein thing about what uh, what's the definition of someone who's insane right keeps right. trying the same thing expecting different results we had the peace process arrive at its logical conclusion twice in 2000 and 2008 with a viable offer of a palestinian state and it did not bring peace why would we continue with this i was listening to uh um I'll, gi- I'll give a plug to a friend of mine's podcast, uh, Shmuel Rosner's podcast, and he had a professor uh, from, I believe, Haifa University. I don't remember the gentleman's name now, um, but a professor of the Middle East, the modern Middle East. And he mentioned um, that, you know, maybe in kind of a Western concept, uh, there have always been population transfers after wars, right? Happened after all the yeah. you know, wars in modern history in, in Europe, um, you know, you lose a war, your populations transfer, you, you reconfigure your borders, and, and you move on. And in the Middle East, uh, traditionally, uh, war is not over until everyone gets to go back to their homes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I haven't looked into this yet, but uh, I, w- I wonder, I mean, you covered the Middle East for a long time. Um, I wonder if that has any kind of validity and, and any kind of uh, relevance to to this ongoing conflict that maybe they're just, you know, that... That's a that's not a negotiating point. They really can't give up on this conflict until that's resolved. Well, then there's not going to be a resolution to the conflict. Right. It's that simple. Yeah. Because uh, Israel is not going to disappear. Yeah, we've had, um, you know, I, I've been banging my head against a wall trying to figure this out for a long time. And our first guest was uh, a settler who, who was in favor of one state uh, with equal citizenship for the Palestinians, which, you know, a lot of people think sounds uh, ludicrous. Certainly it's a far-reaching um, from my understanding, Benny, what you were asking, um, and and hopefully we will have a Palestinian uh, as a guest uh, who can speak openly um, about this and who's willing to speak openly. Um, a lot of young Palestinians would prefer 
to to wait it out and then eventually just have a one state reality with equal citizenship although mm-hmm. you know from our both jewish history and from the history of the modern middle east multi-ethnic societies here in the middle east don't tend to work out very well lebanon's the best example sure. I and mean, they did it did okay for a good long time but then it all fell apart which inevitably it does uh, and Iraq, of course, is, is the right. Is the so you have to have enough of a homogeneity of of mm-hmm. one ethnic yeah, religious uh, group. Uh, right? A one state solution is bad for both sides, but especially right. for us. That's why I think a lot of so, people are shocked at you know Beinart's uh, article. Uh, yeah, maybe last week. I'm not among them. Okay, you're not I shocked by the article. Couldn't care less what he says. <laughs> you know that that's a very Israeli response, and I oh love yeah, it. I sure. love it. You know and, who you are know, you, and, yeah, and we don't care. Yeah, right? well, that's pretty much it. I mean. Uh, I practically got run out of town on a rail uh, during a lecture tour because uh, I said that I would really prefer that American Jews keep their views about Israel and its policies in the inner circle and not uh, not in the New York Times. Not not here. Yeah, the New York Times. It's you know sometimes it's the paper of record as they call it, and then sometimes it seems like it's the uh, the place to rag about Israel and mm-hmm. and internal Jewish matters. It, it yeah. seems to me maybe that's just because of the, the feeds I see and the kind of people I follow, but it seems like Israel and Jewish issues get way too yeah. much coverage in the New York Times. No, I basically you know, was saying that uh, there isn't another ethnic group in the United States, to the best of my knowledge, that takes such a, a uh, deep and public, underlying public interest in what's going on in another country. More than like the Jews seem to feel free yeah. to speak about what's going on inside Israel. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if you noticed, uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a lead article in the second section of the Jerusalem Post uh, by some European uh, macher who said that uh, that every uh, Jew in the world should have Israeli citizenship. Yeah, I see. I, I see Israeli sometimes uh, you know, proposing that. Well... To which I said, and of course they didn't print the letter, that sure, I'm all in favor of of, uh, of every uh, European Jew having Israeli citizenship uh, as long as they pay full taxes. Exactly. <laughs> uh, as long as they commit themselves to three years military service and 20 years of, uh, of, of reserve duty. And as long as they're uh, willing to send their children to the army. Then we'll talk. Then the welcome the home. More, the more the merrier. Welcome home. Yeah. And that's crazy. I mean, I, th- that's what I'm saying. Do, do Korean Americans go to the New York Times and complain about what's happening in Korea? I have a feeling they do. Do Japanese Americans, do do Irish Americans, they think- march down uh, Broadway on, on St. Patrick's Day, but that's not the same thing. I, I don't think any, you're right. You I think, I don't this think is crazy. Why do, why, why, do we, why do we put up with this at all? Why do we give a damn what a guy like Barnard says about about Israeli politics, well, I think, I think Americans, when they argue about Israel, um, you know, Daniel Gordis writes about this uh, really well. They're talking about themselves and their own Jewish identities. I think more than anything, they're not. You know, are they really arguing about the foreign policy or the domestic policy of a foreign country that they have an affinity for? Uh, that's one step past what I'm even prepared to consider. Mm. Uh, because as soon as as Israelis uh, are, are the target of this kind of, quote, criticism, unquote, by, by fellow Jews, we're the ones who pay the price. We're the ones who pay the price for this uh, by eroding the support for, for us. Look, 
you might have gathered that I'm probably not the biggest fan of, of Netanyahu that they're picked up on it country. Really? <laughs> yeah. I'm I, I'm I was trying to hide it as best I could, but you might have picked up Did on it. You did a really good job. <laughs> but, but you're wearing a BB shirt. I'm just kidding. Oh, right. <laughs> right. Um I'm wearing a Fort Wayne, Indiana shirt, by oh, the way, if anyone, if anyone wants to know. He um, is. Wow. Probably the only one in Israel. I was going to say, you definitely, probably, definitely are the only person in Israel. I'm pretty sure I'm the shirt. only one around with South Bend, Indiana shirts. There you go. Okay. <laughs> um, I just don't see where, uh, where this has any validity. I, uh, uh, American Jews... I've even I've definitely written about this. Uh, American Jews should be working to solve their own problems today, and Israel should be helping them to do it. Uh, it's partially our fault. We had this this ridiculous slogan going on for years: "We are one." United Jewish Appeal: "We are one." No, we're not one. We are the ones who put our lives on the line over here. We're the ones who pay taxes to the Israeli government, right? We're not one with someone who, who contributes money to us. We're not. And uh, as long as we give this, uh, the, this uh, uh, erroneous assumption any, any life, then you have things like uh, a, uh, a community in, in North America who was taking part in something called Project Renewal, uh, which was sure. uh, a joint uh, thing to to you know help build things to, to bring up uh, urban uh, kind of yeah, urban yeah. communities uh, struggling urban drawing its support from a project because the local people didn't want to do it the way the Americans wanted to do it. What? <laughs> Are you kidding me? We're living here. You know, I'm sorry. Uh, like I say, I got run out of a run out of a campus on a rail because of because I got into. This. I, I've noticed two things on that. I think uh, one, there's there tends to be kind of um, you know, a me-centric view as far as American philanthropy here. And I don't want to discredit American philanthropy because it's done some wonderful, wonderful projects around the country. Uh, I spent a very short period of my time working with uh, American Jewish philanthropists, um, trying to help facilitate those things. But there is that. On the other side, you see in Israel, though, there's a bit of a kind of an arrogance, kind of, a, you know, we deserve this as opposed to thank you, Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. There, there, it's it done damage both in both directions, no right. question about it. But, uh, yeah, I think we're reaching, it seems now, we're reaching a sort of a paradigm shift, and you can see this with the new Diaspora Affairs Minister um, and the government's policy and with Jewish communities struggling with COVID that Israel is kind of changing its, uh, you know, its role and, and looking to help diaspora communities, especially struggling diaspora communities more, um, and doesn't need that help from the from the diaspora as much as we used to. Absolutely. And I think we're internalizing it, it here. Definitely should uh, should turn it around in the other direction. So I've written about this. I'm not sure that one got it. The book it was pretty recent. But the, we can send teachers. We can send security officers. Yeah, we I've, can do I've all kinds of things. Well, right. Yeah, we can do all kinds of things uh, that would cost us a couple hundred million dollars, but we've got it. I think it'd be fantastic if, if yeah. uh, we took... You know, former combat soldiers, um, the kind of people, not not just Joe Schmo combat soldier, but mm -hmm. uh, the kind who have worked as, as actually trained security at civilian facilities and sent one as a security shaliach to every, you know, Jewish institution. I know in Europe they have them, mm -hmm. but in the U.S. I haven't seen this yet. And I think this could be a fantastic I, 
a practical but also kind of a, a bridging you know a solution absolutely 100 percent. and i would add to that almost and i see this also in what i'm you know what i do in my career as well working with with uh you know with with tourism for for jewish federations and jewish organizations where we facilitate those sort of mission trips that donors come on um Yes, it seems that in 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 you know as long as I can remember, the sort of relationship that's been that's been there beyond the donor patron sort of relationship, Israel's been engaged in hasbara or public diplomacy to explain to Jewish communities and the world abroad, uh, beyond of uh, of why it is that we are here and what you know the righteousness of our cause and you know explaining to people what there is and we're, we're still explaining right right yeah. we're explaining so, so it's all this time is like we're explaining let's explain to you american jew you american christian you you know joe schmo whoever you know what it is that we're doing and and the the ultimate desire or the rationale for doing that seems to be to convince you that we're okay to be here so that you don't go and you know support nasty crap you read in the press about israel yeah. So it's like all of this energy and focus is there to kind of ensure that at the end of the day, uh, you know, some guy opens his, his New York Times in the morning, reads something that Peter Bynot wrote or reads something that uh, whoever wrote. And they're like, no, I, I don't agree with that. Israel's great that I'm going to continue to push my congressman to support the, this aid package or, you know, I'm at least not going to oppose it. And it seems to me that in, in the day and age that we live in, uh, and, and and Dan knows how I feel about Hasbara in general as a concept. I think that you know we should be putting our money where our mouth is. So what you've suggested and what Dan is talking about is something that I also have been saying for years and years, which is you know I think that Israel as as a strong uh, you know regional presence or international uh, leader, uh, especially as the country that has the largest Jewish population of any country in the world today, over you know overpassing uh, the U.S. Jewish population. We can no longer be able, it's not right for us to portray ourselves as, as a weak country that requires the massive help of our friends and allies abroad. Uh, you know, it's one thing to, to, to say that in terms of needing foreign aid from the United States government, but to say, you know, we need to appeal to Jews living abroad to open your checkbooks, uh, you know, while that is important for them perhaps to engage, I don't think that it serves us any, you know, or benefits us in any way to 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 come out there as if we're some sort of a poor, struggling country. At this Absolutely, stage. and now we're you're coming back into the title of my book, aren't right. you? <laughs> so, so for us to go and say, okay, and, and I can even go back further than COVID to go, you know, after what happened at Tree of Life in Pittsburgh, you know, it was in my mind, you know, I said this to people publicly, you know, why aren't we in Israel sending emissaries? from the police or from the military to Jewish communities abroad, sharing with them our insights, you know, helping them come up with proper models for security oh, in I their communities. We did, but why was that not the quote-unquote Hasbara? Why wasn't a more of a big deal made about that? Well, I mean, in the U.S., if I'm not mistaken, first of all, there, there's a, um, in some countries in the world you can do that. I think the U.S., because of the, the relatively good law enforcement and the good connections between the communities, and the law enforcement and then FBI on a, on a national level, it's it's more complicated. You, I don't think you can just send in, but you can send in, uh, you know, I'm not familiar with the technicalities of it. Um, you can't just send in, you know, a whole troop of right. former IDF soldiers. No. Yeah, um, problem with armed people. In my no, and, and I wasn't and, suggesting and I know, that, by the way, can be overcome. The uh, Jewish agency, and I know um, from my day job years ago, um, we put out a kind of a, 
emergency preparedness manual that helped spawn all sorts of structures within the organized American Jewish community. And now they're, they're actually really on top of it as far as security and emergency preparedness. There's um, a national coordinator who's got serious both um, military combat and uh, police and government experience running this. I happened to look into it a few years ago, and we saw that they actually are doing it, and they don't really need our help. Uh, and in America, it's more complicated. Good. Um, well, not but, good that it's complicated. But, but, good. but let me ask you, Mark, uh, the, the aid package, right? So we talked about American Jewish philanthropy, which used to be very significant to Israel. And over the years, it's it's still very helpful, certainly to the organizations that get it, but it's not it's not critical um, That's right. anymore. Uh, the aid package. So one of these things that also used to be a lifesaver and is now, I'll, I'll call it nice to have. And I've publicly defended the continuation of it, but I'd, I'd, you know, we'd be glad to hear your take on uh, this $4 billion a year uh, military aid package, um, which soon will used to be mostly American arms and will soon be uh, all American arms to Israel. Um, do you think that's something that we should continue to ask for and receive? I've been saying for years we need to wean ourselves away from that. Why? Uh, we need to wean ourselves away from it for a couple of reasons. First of all, it forces us to buy weapon systems we don't need. Now, you would be more of an expert on this than I am, but I know of a few that we don't. We either could do better ourselves and or don't need them the way they're configured. Uh, And secondly, it it gives all kinds of uh, two-cent politicians saying, if Israel doesn't do A, B, and C, we're going to cut the aid. Which which I think is legitimate from an American standpoint. Yeah, I'd rather not have that over my head. Thank you very much. Don't you think, though, it keeps America uh, tied close to us um, and kind of having a a feeling of responsibility over what happens here? Um, Maybe the opposite. Maybe you you just don't want that, maybe. I don't want it. Certainly I don't want it. I want to be, uh, especially looking at America today, I don't want them anywhere near this place. Uh, I I think we would do well to, to, to have an independent foreign policy today, frankly. I'm not saying we need to sidle up to anyone else, uh, but to, to be a, uh, an independent player in a volatile region like this without the, uh, the whims of an American government that signs an agree- agreement one year and cancels it the next, and from one day to the next decides to pull all of its troops out of a neighboring country, I don't really want to be tied uh, too, too closely to that kind of regime. Do you, th- do you think that we can handle all of our threats without the assistance of the Americans? Uh, until the COVID crisis, yeah, I thought we could. Uh, on the other hand, I'm the one who says we need to uh, spend several billion dollars a year to uh, uh, to reconstitute our health service. And if we cut the three or four billion dollars a year out of the defense budget, uh, where's the money for the health service going to come from? So in practical terms, I guess we can't for this. But it would be very, very nice if in the six years remaining on the current 10, six years, right, remaining on the current 10-year package uh, of uh, $3.8 billion a year from the United States, which, by the way, as you said, is nothing other than a $3.8 billion subsidy for the American defense industries since we have to buy everything over there. Right, and by the end of the agreement. And people who are are talking about cutting aid to Israel – (laughs) <laughs> like, right, you know, as soon as they do that, then they're cutting off their own noses to spite their faces because they're going to be closing defense industry plants in their own country. Thank you very much. 
I, I don't want to play that game anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't think we should for, for all kinds of reasons, not just the fact that we don't really need to anymore, but we really shouldn't anymore. And maybe if we made a goal to not ask for this again after the current 10-year package is over with, uh, I would be very happy. Of course, you were, when you were talking about uh, the kind of the unstable nature from uh, from administration to administration as far as its policy, uh, one of the things you hinted at was the Iran deal. Yes, uh, that was signed uh, by under President Obama in his in his last year in two thousand fifteen, I believe, and then overturned uh, by Trump. Uh, what's your take on the agreement and then the overturning of the agreement and kind of where we are now um, in facing what really is our most serious and strategic uh, military challenge today. I'm an outlier on this. I admit it. We uh, like we like outliers. Yeah, That's okay. Fine. And there is something like 6,000 words in the book about this. I won't be able to do it all here. <laughs> um, let's put it this way. Uh, a lot of my views about Iran were changed or uh, updated, put it that way, by the fact that when I was in Cairo, uh, I was the uh, was a senior editor at the Associated Press Middle East Service, and I actually got to talk to people in in Tehran. I got to talk to our reporters there, uh, the AP reporters, the that AP were stationed reporters in Tehran, in, in okay. Tehran. Uh, and I got to talk to people who had actually been there, like recently, uh, and and understand what the situation actually is there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so on a number of levels. Uh, I believed that the Iran nuclear deal at the time was the best deal we could possibly get. Yeah, you you believed that at the time? Yes. Even after speaking to people? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh Uh, And by the way, uh, reading the thing from cover to cover, which, as I said, talked about my wide bottom before I do that, (laughs) I, again, may be one of the few. Uh, Um, I also uh, spent more than a few days reading that agreement. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, (laughs) I've got a, a... a section of my uh, my bookshelf in, in, in my office that is devoted to agreements like this. And this is the most stringent one of them all. I've never seen an international agreement, whether it's Vietnam or uh, the uh, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty or whatever, that has so many restrictions in it. It had a lot of restrictions, but, uh, you know, uh, at the in the... Run up to the agreement, I was um, in IDF military intelligence, um, and then as the agreement was being signed, I had retired already. Um, but I was I was pretty up to date on both the intelligence on Iran, on the Middle East, and on the agreement itself. And, and the consensus among a lot of my colleagues and former colleagues was that it was better than nothing. And, and I published this. Um, um, I wrote a, a series of uh, analysis pieces after I left the military. I the agreement was better than nothing. I disagree with you that it's the best we could have gotten. By we, I mean the United States in this case. Um, but there were a few major gaps and loopholes in that agreement that I think, um, I think Iran pushed very, you know, to their credit for their negotiating credit. They pushed at the last minute and they got it. Uh, if we're talking about the sunset clauses, uh, if we're talking about taking out the teeth on arming regional terrorist groups, if we're talking about anything related to ballistic missile activity. Um, So, you know, once that agreement was in place, I'm kind of now with that camp, and it sounds like you are there too, 
maybe it's, it wasn't the best agreement, although you said you were happy with it. We saw a lot, we saw flaws in it, but as a mechanism to increase the oversight over Iran, and then you take that mechanism and you don't scrap it, which I think Trump did purely for electoral reasons without a whole lot of uh, strategic foresight behind it. Um, you, you take that mechanism and you, you kind of, you know, something I always advocated for was you flip Iran's strategy on itself. So you take, you know, what are the Iranians good at doing? Um, or we talked about this in a different context, the salami strategy, if you're mm-hmm. familiar with that, mm-hmm. right? Uh, piece by piece. And then over time, so you keep it in place and then you build on that as a foundation instead of scrapping it. Yes, um, of course. Right. My idea at the time, and, and I still hold this, is that the Iran nuclear deal gave us an opening to try to turn Iran around by bringing it back into what you call the family of nations. Well, by, that was Obama's strategy. Yes, right? it was, I, I believe. Although I have to say, among Obama's many failures, he failed to explain this to his people. He failed to explain what his strategy actually was. Uh, certainly didn't explain it to us. Do you, do you think one of the big criticisms at the time, even that I had, was that Obama and Ben Rhodes and kind of the whole national security team, um, they sold it to the American people uh, as sort of, it's either this or war. And, and that was, you know, that was definitely not the case. Uh, right. Nobody in Israel was calling for war. Right. You know, well, I, John Bolton was. John Bolton was. But, but for the, the most crazy part, people here were, it was, yeah. It was the mustache. <laughs> um, nobody was calling for war. We were just calling for a better deal. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, so once you've got this deal, once you've got to the go deal, there, right. then, then there are two things you can do about yeah. it. You can either, uh, after the deal is already negotiated, you can go to Washington as Israel's prime minister and speak before a joint session of Congress and get half the country angry at you as a result, and they still are, and rightfully so. Or you can say, okay, that was fun. Now we're going to go in a different direction and see what happens. Although, um, you know, kind of a half insider view here, towards the end of that negotiating process, uh, I don't know how much this was reflected in the media, the Obama administration started freezing out Israel from the process. So I, I, I don't know how many trips to Washington I made um, in uniform, and I don't know how many meetings I had in Jerusalem with American officials on this. And I think, at least from where I was sitting, we started getting frozen out of the process, out of the loop, and we started reading things. Um, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, that, that you know, hey, well, they didn't consult with us on that. They didn't consult with us on this. So there, there started this view um, from, from at least where I was sitting that maybe they have changed strategy and, and a lot of people thought that Obama, and especially based on, you know, the famous uh, Cairo speech that he gave, you were probably in Cairo at the time, right? No, before I went. Okay, before that. Um, the Cairo speech where he kind of brought this realignment of American foreign policy towards the Middle East and the Muslim world, and then the cold shoulder to Saudi Arabia, the cold shoulder to Israel, and then all of a sudden this, you know, what seemed like a kind of warm handshake towards Iran that either he didn't understand what this regime was or that he may be even secretly, and this is kind of delving into conspiracy theories, was was kind of supporting that worldview. Um, so how does that play into it? I mean, you know, did right. you think he was naive? Do you think there was something more to it? No, I, I think, uh, as I said, I think he got the best deal he could. Uh, and let me throw out something else here. 
The current policy is to increase sanctions against Iran uh, and to make it as tough as possible on the Iranian regime to do anything. Uh, Iranians, there are Iranians who are starving. Uh, there are, are many, many Iranians who are out of work. Well, uh, well they've badly mismanaged their own economy as have, well. That, that's certainly true. But, of course, the, the sanctions and the boycotts uh, sure. have, have made it exponentially worse. Do people really think that if there's a regime change in Iran, that this new regime is suddenly going to be a Jeffersonian democracy, pro-Western, pro-Israel, and everything's going to be fine? Are you kidding no regime change in this part of the world has ever been like that. It's going to get worse. That's your end game. If you, you really you want to replace... it worse and oh, more anti-Western sure. than the regime that they currently have? Oh, sure. You know, if we call America the leader of the free world, I think it's safe to say Iran is the leader of the... whatever that world is, that kind of anti-Western... When they start giving suitcase bombs to, to terrorists to, to blow up in the middle of London, yeah, that'll be worse. Because they don't care. I think can't they do any, care. They're pragmatic. Now, yes, this, now this crowd is pragmatic. <laughs> if we overthrow them because the people have had enough of this, what kind of crazy people are you going to get in charge of Tehran? I mean, really, is that what you all want? When you had a chance, you had a chance with the uh, removal of sanctions to engage these people in business, to create a set of interests, common interests between Iran and the West, that would be similar to the kinds of interest Israel has with Jordan and Egypt. And those peace treaties are solid as a rock because of the common interests. We had a chance, but instead of that, we continued, especially Israel, continued with its sniping attacks, even continued with some actual attacks, uh, to, to, to torpedo this whole process as best it could. Well, I mean, the, the actual attacks, uh, you know, according to press reports, are against literal military installations in Syria. All right, fine. Uh, and, and Iran continues and Iran, to Iran uh, was more than happy to absorb those attacks as part of the price of having sure. a presence in Syria until we started bragging about them. Right. So I, I think, no, I think it's a smart policy that we've gone back to keeping it quiet. Yeah, that would be good. Uh, but again, as I'm saying, we had this chance. Uh, and I wrote an article which I think made the book uh, called The Very Dangerous I Told You So Policy. That when we cancel the agreement and the whole situation goes to hell and Iran builds a nuclear bomb and tests a nuclear weapon, then all the people who are against the agreement and all the people who said it should be canceled will say, I told you so. Well, I when you, we had a chance yeah. to do it differently. And we didn't do it. The Israelis were saying that, are saying, you know, we can't take that risk. We, you know, maybe America could take that risk. Obama Uh could take that risk. But we as Israel don't have the luxury of taking the risk of letting Iran get a nuclear weapon. Um, You're a military man. You know that's crap. Okay. The difference between... Elaborate for the people that aren't military men why that's crap. Or military Because, okay. Or for you. I'll tell you why. Because the time lag between getting something that explodes and something that's deliverable is years. And between the time something explodes, you have those years to deal with it. It's not years. It's months. Well, I don't know how effective it would be, but it's months. You're, t- you're talking about the weaponization of, yes. the, uh, of the enriched uranium, right? So yes. they have the ballistic missile capability to fire at Israel at will. 
um, they are very close to having the enriched capability of having enough uh, 90% enriched uh, military-grade uranium. And then the weaponization mm-hmm. um, is, is the tricky part. Yeah. And, and You think months? I don't want to commit to this. Yeah. And I don't want to spill anything that I might have known that shouldn't be out there. Right. And okay. I don't want to say things that I let's, haven't read in public forums. So, let's stop so this right here. Right. <laughs> well, I, can I, I want to go somewhere else, though. Do they, have, do they, the Iranians, have the political or strategic will to go through with such an attack when no, there's no, almost an insured. Nobody thinks they will. No, no, no. Retaliation. No. No, Even I mean, the most hawkish security officials here, nobody right. thought they were actually going right. to attack us with a nuclear weapon. It was that, you know, whatever percent chance that it could happen and then that they would use it as a cover for their belligerent regional activity. The uh, experts I talked to who can't be named uh, back in the day uh, called Iran a rational player. Yes, I right? agree with that. Agree and with your that. fear, Mark, is that if the regime in Iran were to be changed... The power vacuum in its absence would be so strong, that, and there's no, and there, there would be no possible way that more moderate elements in Iran would say, "Hey," and I go back to my, you know, the younger generation people that are more, you know, westward looking, mm-hmm. or, or even eastward, which is looking, a lot of the younger generation, or even right. eastward yeah, looking yeah. towards China. And they're the, the ones who are suffering the most from these sanctions. Yes, yes. they're the ones who are suffering the most from this economic downturn. And who do you think they're going to blame for that? Sure, sure. Say it. No, the U.S. Oh, and but there's no really one there. Expect- there's no. There's no one there. Some. I don't know. I mean, I'm just making this up. There's no. You know, entrepreneur type class or they'd have to come international. There is an entrepreneur class, class but uh, yeah. I would I, say, I mean, hey, this saying, is our time, well, and it would it would have to be sort of like Taliban religious fanatic fundamentalist. I don't know how religious or not, but the politically fanatic, they will definitely. They would. Be. I mean, what else can survive? I mean, we know that that radical politics is more organized than less radical politics. Yeah. I mean, that that is a certainly, facet of, of revolutions and, and uprising, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, l- let's jump to Cairo, uh, sure. because you spent some very interesting years there, and you wrote a book about it, Broken oh, yeah. Springs. That's Broken Spring, yeah. So uh, Broken Springs. So t- take us through uh, the experience of, first of all, being an Israeli Jewish reporter in Cairo, and then the Arab Spring uh, happens yeah. there. Okay, so what happened was that the Associated Press set up a regional editing uh, hub in in Cairo. And starting in 2009, right around the time I was uh, experiencing my uh, uh, troubles with my boss, as it were, and with the entire industry, uh, in in Jerusalem, I got asked to do some fill-in work at the desk in Cairo. Uh, I would go there for a month and then edit uh, edit reports from the entire region and come back to my job in Jerusalem. Uh, was Cairo a regional hub for uh, the AP? Yes, it was a regional hub. We edited uh, stories from the entire region, certainly Israel and the Palestinian areas, uh, uh, Iran all the way out to Afghanistan, Libya. Small uh, area. Egypt, yeah, yeah. it was huge. Uh, and uh, it was a pretty intense uh, job, and I was also the uh, Associated Press AP Radio Middle East correspondent, so I got to do the radio work there as well. It was an extra job. Um, so I started in 2009. I'd go there a month at a time. Uh, there was some amusing... Uh, Wait, so you know how to get a ticket on Air Sinai? Yeah. Holy oh, that, that's in the book. That's in that book. Uh, 
<laughs> uh, the first time uh, I, I uh, was going to go home, I, I found through a, a series of pretty funny uh, steps where the Air Sinai office was in, in Cairo. For, the, for those who don't know, Air Sinai is an airline. It's almost like a paper airline that exists for the sole purpose of providing air transportation from Cairo to Tel Aviv. In unmarked planes. In unmarked planes to fulfill some sort of a uh, uh, part of the peace treaty between right. Egypt and Israel. That's right. So I found the, the, the office. Is your family here with you in Cairo at this time? No, no, no. no. So they, stayed, they stayed in Israel. Yeah, I was there by myself. Okay. Um, I managed to miss the birth of one granddaughter who came came into the world a week early. Uh, I managed to pop into uh, to Rehovot uh, two days before my daughter's wedding, that kind of thing. Uh, so I get to the office, and I pay cash for the ticket, of course. <laughs> you have to pay cash there. Um, and and uh, would fly back and forth four times a year, maybe. Uh, so I would go to Cairo for a month at a time and then come back here for a couple of months, go back there. And that's when I decided, yeah, I'm going to go, go finish my career there. And it took me a while to, to negotiate the whole thing, and I happened to, to, to uh, pitch up there right around the time Arab Spring started. Now, the difference was when I go there for a month at a time, I, I was staying in a hotel. When I went there as a, as a staffer, I found my own apartment. And that, of course, gives you the chance to actually live in Cairo and and to communicate with the people and, and like that, uh, learn some Arabic. Uh, I know some French, so we were able to communicate on a simple level. Uh, and I, I got a, a very, very good feeling for, for who these guys were and what was going on. And I also was able to understand how completely misleading and distorted the news coverage was of the whole thing. And that's why I wrote the book. Turns out, what I was experiencing in Jerusalem was going on in Cairo in, in, in the same kind of way that they, that they had picked their, their good guys, and the good guys were the revolutionaries with the Facebook and the Twitter and, uh, and, and all this stuff who might have. Look, at the time, uh, only 38% of, of Egyptians had access to the Internet at all. So, so who were these people that had social media accounts? Uh, Secular liberals who are a tiny minority in Cairo, in, in Egypt, uh, and I'm not saying they were powerless; they weren't, uh, you know. But but they were the heroes of the media, and they really represented nobody. And not only that, as you saw from election after election, they had no idea how to do democracy. Yeah, right. right. You'd have uh, all these disparate groups who who shared only the idea that uh, the particular regime, whichever one it is at the time, has to go. And then what? They had no idea. They had no idea. So, of course, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, was the organized group that, uh, that took over very nicely and, uh, and, and won, the, won one of the elections. So, again... Uh, a similar story here in a lot of places around the Middle East. I mean, it's what happened in Iran in 79, of course. right? The, the yeah. Islamists were the most organized and yeah, they ended up yeah. taking over. Yeah, of course. Uh, so you, you, I, I saw again and again that the stories that were being covered were not the ones that really should have been, and that the stories that were not being covered were the ones that I was interested in. And I kept writing articles uh, and then sending them around on emails uh, to my friends. Uh, and, and, and then I realized, wait a minute, there's a book here. Hmm. So the book's a similar format to, to my second book. I'll have to get a copy of that. Please. 
<laughs> My pleasure. Haven't sold one of those for a while. There you go. <laughs> so, so what, what were the stories that were happening that weren't being reported on? Economy. The economy. It's completely different from anything we've ever seen. Now, maybe you all are, are, are more familiar with it. What a cash economy means? It means that I paid my rent in, in a stack of two inches thick of, of uh, banknotes every month. I did not have a checking account. Only 10% of the people in Egypt have checking accounts. So there's no credit. It's a creditless. Pretty much creditless and also reportless. And reportless. So naturally, most of the economy is, is off the books. So there's no taxes coming in. No taxes revenue. coming in. Uh, and no no the revenue. banks don't have credit. They can't grow their finances. Exactly, have, uh, exactly. And, and that's why the whole thing is... Is in it goes down the tubes. Uh, that's just one example. Uh, I wrote economic story after economic story you know, for for my. Uh, I didn't have a blog at the time uh, for for my my audience uh, of a couple of hundred people who got these emails, uh, uh, and I practiced what I preached to make it interesting. Uh, it's my job to to take a significant story that's boring and make it interesting. That's why I'm a journalist. Right, and I th- did my best. Uh, I wrote about how they were unprepared for democracy, that elections don't make democracy. Right, that's to the last step, not the first, uh, and and bunches of bunches of things like that. That no, and women's rights. Goodness, sure. What was the West interested in? What was the AP interested in? Oh, the AP was interested in Tahrir Square, uh, where the where the demonstrations were going on, what the liberals had to say. And even after the Muslim Brotherhood took over, uh, I would get stories uh, uh, that some liberal says so and so and such. And liberal's not a curse word to me. Don't get the wrong sure. idea. Uh, uh, say so and so and such that's about the regime, and the and the government refused to comment. And I would call back to the Cairo desk, which was in the same building as mine, same floor. Said, "No comment, really. You can't get a Muslim de- a Muslim Brotherhood person to comment on this." No, they won't talk to us. <laughs> oh, all right, fine. So one morning, I worked nights, right? I worked four to midnight. Uh, I had the mornings to... You seem to like that shift. Oh, yeah. But I had the mornings uh, to uh, to report for radio. So one morning, I took my little digital tape recorder, my little microphone, and walked across the bridge to, uh, to a, a neighborhood, uh, a Cairo neighborhood uh, along the Nile, uh, and walked around till I found a Muslim Brotherhood office, knocked on the door, and said, Hi. I'm a reporter from the Associated Press. Anybody here speak English? He said, sure. Sat me down with an official spokesman of the Muslim Brotherhood. We talked for half an hour. <laughs> I can get an interview, but the Cairo Bureau can't. Why? Because all of their friends and all of their sources are liberals. Wow. Oh, were, there, were there Arabs, uh, yes. Egyptians in, yes. in the office? Yes. And they didn't think to do that? Never they didn't could. want to do it. They, they didn't want to do it. There, thank you. They didn't want to it do it. It wasn't the message they wanted to promote. That's right. That's right. And uh, the, the coverage reflected that. And no matter what I did, I could not get them to change that. So then there's the... Uh, so now you become unpopular with the Associated Press and Oh, sure. Uh, then there's the story reaches my desk about the Israeli... Uh, the Israeli embassy has been evacuated and all of the, all of the staffers, including the ambassador, have fled the country. So I'm supposed to edit the story and put it on the wire. So I take out my cell phone and dial my local number. And Yaakov answers. Yaakov, how are you? Fine. Where are you? So I'm at home. Ah, cool. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Goodbye. That was the ambassador. 
And it turns out I'm the only person in the Associated Press office in the Cairo hub who knows an ambassador enough to call him on the phone. No one else Unbelievable. This had is, this any is when... contact with diplomats, even the American embassy. They didn't know where the spokesman so was. So this is just really a story. There's like two, two narratives in this sort of a story. It's, there's people that do not know how to fundamentally do their job. And there are people who want to promote a certain agenda and a certain narrative that does not reflect at all uh, the facts of of the situation in terms or, of reporting. They're not the even no, they're not different. That's the same same it's the description. Same yeah. Right, exactly the same description. Wait, so you're there, right? The for those who don't recall, the Israeli embassy in Cairo was was overrun mm-hmm. by protesters, uh, rioters, and. Uh, were, were, I think there were Israelis in the building at the time, yes. right? And they locked themselves in a safe room. Right. Is, was and that terrifying for you as an Israeli? <laughs> and, I mean, what does that feel like? Did anybody know who you really were? Yeah, everybody in the office knew. Because I'd been there were several times. Were you scared? Were you scared and for I, your life? And I would never have gone there permanently if had I not known that no, no one's got a problem. No one's got a problem with me being an Israeli, right? I was, no, I was not. So here's the story. Uh, two weeks after... Uh, I, I moved to Cairo uh, in August, I think it would have been 2013. I was there earlier, but okay, that I actually moved there. Uh, uh, I had my usual Shabbat uh, Sabbath where I'm an Orthodox Jew, so I don't watch TV or radio or any of that. And I, w- I would take walks around the island where, I, where we lived, uh, where the bureau was and where I lived. Uh, and, you know, the thing that I would get back home and then read a book or whatever until the Sabbath ended. Then I would do the ceremony that, uh, that marks the end of the Sabbath and turn on my phone. And no more that I had my finger on the phone that was on that it started ringing. So, okay, fine, it's my wife. Mark, are you all right? <laughs> I said, why wouldn't I be all right? Is that a very nice, quiet Sabbath? They attacked the Israeli embassy. Oh, really? I had no idea. It's a city of 22 million people. It was five miles away. How would I even know? How would you know? It was Friday night. How would I even know? No, I wasn't frightened. From that event specifically, nothing changed? Nothing no. said, maybe it's not safe for me to be here? No, no. No, I mean, first of all, there was one Israeli who uh, was, was teaching Hebrew in a coffee shop off of Tahrir Square and then had... Uh, all kinds of pictures of himself in an army uniform on his Facebook page and like that. He was asking for it, so he was in prison for a little bit. But uh-huh. I, I wasn't, you know. We we always hear um, here in Israel, um, you know, about how, you know, we have a peace treaty with Egypt, but the society has never normalized relations with us. Uh, Israelis do travel, you know, kind of quietly to Egypt, but um, we've never really you know, had those cultural and social connections and, and the street can be very anti-Semitic. You know, you hear about Mein Kampf uh, being sold in bookstores. Did you ever, you know, uh, I, I recall a specific uh, comment from, from your book about what anti-Semitism is like in Egypt. I mean, did you ever get a sense that, you know, you met people in the streets, you said, I'm an Israeli Jew. You know, did they treat you differently? Did they care? First of all, I, I didn't say that on the street. I was an American reporter on the street. Uh, the people who knew I was an Israeli Jew... Uh, were two groups of people. Uh, one, everyone in my office. And secondly, my landlord, who uh, once stopped me as I'm away, on my way out the door, and he said, you better put that in your pocket. Hmm. My 
pointing to my skull cap. You, you were walking around with your kippa. You yeah, know, that, I usually that symbolizes right. Yeah, but so. he already knew I was Jewish. Uh, uh, but again, so on December twenty fifth, he wished me a merry Christmas. He doesn't know what Jew is. <laughs> okay, uh, so here is the deal about uh, uh, about Egyptian anti semitism. We read about it. We see it on television, right. uh, and and conspiracy theories. Et yeah, right. and, and Egyptians are 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 brought up to to hate Israel and hate Jews, and they have so many other things on their mind that it's not important to them. We think that they get out of bed and say, yeah, "Today I'm going to hate Israel more." Right? They couldn't care less. It's so far down the list, you know. And the, 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 I like to say uh, that. Uh, uh, Egyptians hate Israel like I hate broccoli. <laughs> you know, it's just not uh, not important to them. Wow, it is part of their society. I'm not saying it's not, but it's really not important. Do you not. really hate broccoli? No, <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds good. It sounds good. Brussels. No sprouts. one's ever asked me that. <laughs> good question. This is the day, July fourteenth. Mark Levy was, was asked if he hates broccoli. Right. <laughs> All right. So we're back from Cairo, and you come back to Israel. Um, let's go back to Gaza. You have any more uh, interesting stories from your your time covering uh, covering the upheavals in Gaza? Well, I think one thing that's important to to understand is that journalists, especially radio journalists, who have to have to be on the front row uh, because of our microphones. Uh, we we meet people, we get to know people. The rest of you just have to count on what I bring you, right? Uh, but I find well, first of all, it's one of my tools as a as an interviewer is, is to loosen people up with a with a laugh or two you know i, I like to laugh i like to tell jokes like to hear them sure breaks and, the ice yeah and, and, and the most unusual people have the best senses of humor i found uh I, I guess the best example is mahmoud zahar he's the head of hamas in in gaza uh he's a, a sociopath and a, and a terrorist but a funny guy. <laughs> He's a little fellow, you know, really poly. Never thought fellow. I'd hear that yeah. sentence. Yeah, uh, and sociopath, and, terrorist, and a funny guy. Yeah. Uh, before we would do, I, I would be in, every time I was in Gaza, and I was there at least once a week. Uh, practically every time I'd go bang on his drawer, and we'd we'd do uh, either do an interview or have a chat. Um, and I remember once he uh, had been imprisoned by Fatah, by uh, Arafat's people. Uh, for six weeks, and they they tortured him and and starved him and and you know really really awful. So I, I went to knock on his door a week after he got out, and there he was. Uh, he'd lost a lot of weight. He was slim and trim. You know he, he used to be a little roly poly guy. So he opens the door and I and I say, Mahmoud, you look terrific. You should write a diet book. And he <laughs> laughed. <laughs> we had a great old time. Didn't take him long to get back at me. Because we, uh, an Italian television journalist pitched up at the same time, and the uh, Islamic Jihad leader was there as well. So picture, right? Israeli Jew with the with the head of Hamas, the head of Islamic Jihad, in the same room. And they know who you are. They know. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. So Sheikh Azam is sitting next to Mahmoud, and and they're doing this double interview. And the Sheikh Azam speaks English also. Um, so the Italian, I, I'm off to the side, sticking my microphone in. Uh, so I can record both of them. And the Italian uh, television reporter is next to her camera, right in the middle. And she asks a question that includes the phrase, extremists in Hamas. <laughs> so with a totally straight face, Mahmoud starts answering the question. And then he turns and looks straight at me and says, 
there are no extremists in Hamas. They're all in Islamic Jihad. <laughs> and turns back and continues this answer, and I'm trying to hold my side so I don't crack up laughing in the middle of an interview. <laughs> that's one of the funniest things that's ever happened to me as a journalist. Sociopath, a terrorist, and a really funny guy. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> wow. Um, Rav, let's wrap up with kind of a look forward, um, if you don't mind. Um, so we mentioned the whole, you know, Barry Weiss uh, thing. Uh, and social media kind of taking over and how difficult it is to to report the news. Um, is there a way out of this? Is there a way, I don't want to say backwards because I hate saying that. Is it, So what's, what's the way forward? How do we get our society um, to a place where we can have real news, having social media being such an important part, an integral part of who we all are today? That's the question I wish people would never ask me. You know, <laughs> what do we do now? Uh, I don't have great answers. I can tell you what I do tell people who ask that, ask that question, and that is to break out of your uh, circle, break out of your echo chamber. Yeah. And every day, make sure that you read at least one article that makes your blood boil. Yeah. I do that as a habit. Yeah. Well, you do. I do. Sure. Uh, but most yeah. people don't. Uh and religiously, every day, I've got one Facebook friend who drives me absolutely crazy, and I read his stuff every day. <laughs> I think I have a feeling I know who it is. <laughs> Very possible. Uh, now, another one. Okay. <laughs> Him, too. <laughs> um, are there any sources online, any, any, any sites that are, like if I asked you, where 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 would one go if you know where would a, where should a conservative go to get a liberal point of view and vice versa, or, or ask differently what's if if there's such thing as the most unbiased source to get news on the Middle East today where is it? The only thing I can suggest that you do is what I do uh, every day. I read uh, three or four Israeli news sites, one newspaper, uh, two Egyptian newspapers. Uh, uh, half a dozen American sites, uh, um, and based on all that, I can begin to start to make up my mind about what actually right, right, right. happened. The thing is, I've got time for this. I'm retired. Right. I, I don't know how to... You know, there is no one source anymore. Sure. There is no one source. You have to read a bunch of them. It's true. Yeah. And uh, maybe... Maybe my uh, mythical television station might help solve that. Well, once again, if any funders are listening out there and they want to support <laughs> a worthy project. I, I remember uh, you know, working as an Intel analyst. Uh, that's exactly what we do. But again, like, like you said, it was your job. It was my job. Mm-hmm. And that's what we were trained to do. You, uh, you look at open sources. You look at you know, uh, various covert sources. And you, you put them all together, cross-reference them like a puzzle. And then kind of what comes out is you start to understand what's really uh, mm-hmm. Happening. I like reading um, Al Monitor. Yeah, um, that's one of them on, on my list. I think yeah. it's really good because they're bringing local journalists from the different countries into one kind of platform. Um, so it helps get a hard to say again balanced, but as balanced that's as just, we can get. That said, uh, you'll see in in one of my books. Uh, it's the first one. The difficulty of being a, a journalist and a writer in a, a, a dictatorial regime, yes, which yes. all of the other regimes besides Israel are in right. one form or another, so that what you're getting on all monitor is monitored, if you will, by the regimes <laughs> yeah. of all of the sure. uh, 
all over the countries where they're writing from. So that's also a problem. So what we always learned was, uh, you know, look at one Arab newspaper to learn about a different country, but mm-hmm. never try to learn about that country from that newspaper because yeah. it's always going to be, you know, censored and monitored. Um, yeah, fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I, I try to very much force myself. I'm on certain Facebook groups with and i don't respond i never respond but they they make me so mad but every <laughs> once in a while there's an article or a post that says you know what i didn't think about it that way yeah, I didn't yeah think exactly. about it. And, and i think that's a wonderful uh a piece of advice um for our listeners out there um who i think the kind of people we imagine would be listening to this are the kind of people looking for that kind of advice um so that's that's wonderful uh, Mark Levy, uh, longtime veteran journalist covering Israel in the Middle East, author of Why Are We Still Afraid and Broken Spring. Thank you so much for being with us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. This episode of Juanced was recorded live in Rehovot, Israel. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.